Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we are continuing our theme this week. We've been talking about paranoia, and we are pairing it today with two movies. So this is our first doubleheader episode, um, and I'm ex- I'm so excited to talk about one of these movies. I can't wait. Um, we're talking about Fright Night and The Burbs. Um, and guys, Fright Night is just one of my all-time favorite movies. I cannot wait mm-hmm. to talk about it's a so many parts of this movie. movie. But the sp- it's a delight. It's so good. I love it oh my so gosh. much. <laughs> I do too. I put it on every time and I just smile. But let's talk about our first experience with both of these movies. So Laura, um, what's your first experience with both of these movies? Yeah, so I've seen Fright Night countless times again because it is one of my favorites. Uh, I don't think I actually saw it until after college, but I think it might have been like one of the first movies that I got when I got Netflix initially. I don't know. But I I remember just falling really in love with it um, for a lot of reasons. My favorite Dracula is Christopher Lee. I love the Peter Mm. Vincent character as a play on horror hosts. And I think he was really inspired by Peter Cushing, who is opposite Christopher Lee in the Dracula Mm -hmm. movie. Um, And uh, I did have one really funny story that I'll tell briefly. I was at the Flashback Weekend, which is a horror convention here in Chicago a few years ago. And Tom Holland was there. He was one of the guests. Yeah. yeah. And so I went in Aww. to see his little talk and then they were going to do a talk and then do a screening. And it was outside and they had an inflatable screen. And every time they started up the projector on the inflatable screen, they would have a power outage and the entire screen would deflate <laughs> and, and, oh my gosh. and fall over. And this they literally did this like five times. And it was just like, I was just getting increasingly uncomfortable and humiliated. And it was it was Tom Holland and the woman who plays Amy was up there. And and oh. I was just like, oh no. And it was just like, so just watching that screen deflate over and over again, I was always stuck in my mind uh, as a Fright Night memory. We eventually left because we were just like, we can't, <laughs> this is not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so you never got to watch it? Not night? in that context, oh. no. But but I did get to hear them talk and all that. So that was still cool. Um, and as for the burbs, I honestly do not recall when I first saw it. I saw it randomly years ago. It, it didn't really make a huge impression on me. But I do remember when we were talking about paranoia and movies and I thought of Fright Night. I did think it would be a good thematic pairing with Fright Night mm-hmm. for reasons that we're going to get into. And I, and I do think that was a correct uh, <laughs> memory of mine. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think they pair really well. Mike, what about you? Yeah, Fright Night would have been one of those like staples of junior high school, like late elementary junior high school. Like it was the movie that you rented. Oh, I mean, look at the cover. That cover just like spoke to me. And I grew up in a neighborhood very much like one um, that Charlie would have been in. And you see that amazing artwork on the cover and then, 
as someone who grew up on like universal monster movies, it was just such a wonderful bridge between the classic monsters I'd watch with on Saturday afternoons with my dad and like the eighties, like blood and gore and, you know, sex, Mm -hmm. stuff like that, you know, know, um, sex, sex, you know, (laughs) and I have thoughts on, on like horror movies and nudity and sex and why it's different now Mm -hmm. and all that. But, um, I adore this movie and I can't tell you like the number of times I've watched this movie and you know, the burbs, I don't think I ever watched all of the burbs until I bought the DVD at some point in like the early two thousands. It was just one of those things that was always on and you would catch Mm -hmm. like bits and pieces of it here or there. And I knew about it. I don't even think I knew Joe Dante did this movie and I loved The Howling. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's like my second favorite werewolf movie of all time. And I love Gremlins. Um, but I don't even think I was aware that, oh, it's a Joe Dante movie. Um, so I would see it in bits and pieces. But like I always mix this movie and the money pit up. And mm-hmm. being a suburban dad, I can tell you that the money pit is far scarier to me. <laughs> now it feels so much more true to my life um and it's like real estate horror. oh my god it's yeah but you know the burps is fun it's like a fun maybe it goes on for a little bit long but goddamn mm-hmm. that cast like yeah it is a good cast i'll yeah. give it that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i think it's the most i've ever liked or been attracted to tom hanks he is a, a tiny bit fine in this movie i don't yes. know if it's the shorts like i don't know what it is mm-hmm. but yeah. it's the bathrobe it's I think. the bathrobe it's it's sweater adjacent it's the bathrobe it is sweater yes. adjacent, so. <laughs> we will have a lot of sweater talk again mm-hmm. today so yes we will <laughs> yeah um so i saw the first time i saw fright night um this is, I think, the first horror movie I ever saw. And I saw it at a sleepover with um, my friend who had older siblings. So she, like, and I was the oldest in my family. So, like, she always had the good stuff. And I would go over to her house and we would watch the stuff. Like, I think her older siblings were were watching it and I just kind of snuck in the room. Um and it terrified me. And I don't think I saw any of the humor because, like, this was the first time I'd ever been exposed to any of this. The uh, special effects, like, I thought were so scary um, and so effective for me. And then the, my funny story about this was that the end, um, over the end credits, they must have muted the TV. And it was the first time I ever heard Living on a Prayer. And so I just thought that was the end credits song and that it had been written about this movie. So, like, that song has always been, like, connected with... So there's always like this sinister vibe to it whenever I hear that song. Um, But I was so scared of this movie, but also like fell in love with it. And I was like, I love vampires. I want more of this. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so I grew up watching it. And then there I probably went for about a 10 or 15 year period of not watching it. And then I watched it as an adult with Corey. And he and he and he was like, this isn't very scary. This is more like this is kind of silly and funny. And that's when I kind of was like, oh, yeah, maybe it is more of a horror comedy than it is. And like maybe that's intentional. And there's like like Mikey, you were saying, like the the horror host, like there's a meta quality to it that I did not get at all. But now I see. And one of the things I think is amazing about this movie is every time I watch it, I see something new. And I think there's just so many levels to it. Um, and I remember The Burbs. The only thing I remember about that movie was watching it as a kid 
And I don't even remember watching it. I remember, oh, I don't like that movie. It's too scary. And I don't remember anything about it except that Tom Hanks was in it. Um, and I hadn't seen it until last night when I watched it for this. Um, and I liked it. I don't think it's um, it's not one of my favorites. Um, there are a lot of things that I love about it. Um, Carrie Fisher is just amazing in everything she does. And some of her dresses in this movie, <laughs> I was like, oh, I got to get that dress. Um, I love her and Tom Hanks together. Um there's a lot of really great things about this movie. I think overall it just doesn't quite work mm -hmm. for me. And I really hate the ending. I wish the turn was not there. And we can talk yeah, about that. I have a maybe. lot of thoughts on that. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I think there's this, it's really going for something and it gets like 99% there yep. and then kind of erases that. Completely. Yeah. Um, that completely feels agree. like a, yeah. it feels like a studio note yep. it definitely feels like a reshoot yes. mm -hmm. in the That's studio note like you can definitely see the head of the studio going like tom hanks can't go to jail exactly like, you know? right yeah which i mean i don't want to see tom hanks in jail because i love him <laughs> but yeah and so i don't know i've got a lot of thoughts but there's a scene like the scene with the bees is hilarious <laughs> right it's like oh my gosh and when he's running when um rumsfeld is running with the fire hose there's a scene in the ring where um the boyfriend is running with a fire hose and his feet slip out from under him because the hose is not long enough and i wonder if that was inspired by this <laughs> it just is hilarious but yeah so i mean yeah, I definitely like one of these movies more than the other, but I do think they're great pairings. They're kind of It's a really good pairing. It is. They're like opposite sides of the same coin, mm -hmm, you know. 100%. And I th I think they're going to fit really well with um the theme of paranoia. Like if you were going to do and there's a um right about 5 miles from us, there's um a, a alehouse and they have um a haunted mansion. And it's like built right onto the property. It's this giant haunted house. And in September, it opens up and like thousands upon thousands of people. I mean, like they make money hand over fist um, during these two months and they do like incredible work. Well, this year they can't open yeah. mm. because um, of COVID. They're like, we couldn't find a way to safely do it. Yeah. So what they're going to do is turn the parking lot into um, a drive in. Mm -hmm. That's during cute. the um, sept mid September through, and they're doing like American Werewolf in London and the thing for their opening wow. movie. And by God, like I will be there <laughs> mm -hmm. with bells on for that. Um, but if you wanted to do like a really good drive in feature, you could have like the burbs for the families. And then like, once the little kids go home, pop on fright night. Yep. I think it's a really good. Pairing. Once the sun so sets. Aha, yes. if you dare. Yeah, and I feel like Fright Night gets compared to the Lost Boys a lot. Oh, which I, I mean, rightly so because of the vampire angle. But I mean, I think if you're talking about suburbia, they definitely mm. both kind of fit. Or, you know, I guess paranoia. I think they work well as a pairing, mm. as we shall see. A paranoid um, pairing. <laughs> Yes, they are a paranoid pairing. I like that alliteration. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get into the movie synopsi. And we have, is that a word? Synopsi? I, I accept it. I accept okay. it. Okay. Judges will allow. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, and we're, we have been doing the official synopsis and then our synopsis. And we're going to skip that this week because we're talking about two movies. Um, okay, so I'm going to read our Fright Night synopsis. Um, one night, suburban teen Charlie Brewster notices a stranger carrying a coffin into the basement of the house next door. After seeing a little too much from his bedroom window, he realizes that his new neighbor is a vampire who has been murdering local women. 
Charlie tries to warn his mother, friends, and even the police, but they all tell him he's been watching too many horror movies. After a direct threat from Jerry, the vampire, Charlie seeks the help of TV horror host and washed-up actor Peter Vincent. Sadly, Peter also thinks Charlie is crazy, but after Charlie's girlfriend Amy promises to pay him, he reluctantly joins Amy and Charlie's friend Evil Ed in trying to prove to Charlie that Jerry is not a vampire. There's prove in quotation marks. Um, This backfires. Ed, Amy, and Peter now become targets as well. Jerry turns Ed into a vampire, offering him escape from being bullied for being a teenage weirdo. Then, in a disco dance sequence that taught a young gen a lot about sexuality, (laughs) Jerry kidnaps Amy and turns her into a creature of the night as bait for Charlie and Peter. They fall for it and go to Jen's house to rescue Amy. I'm sorry, go to Jerry's house. You just wait. Well, you wish Jerry (laughs) went to Jen's house. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Woo! Right. To what's. What's really weird is my old VHS copy definitely in the back said this scene taught Jen a lot about sexuality. So does it really? Yeah, yeah. Really I mean, you're like that, that's weird. I didn't understand that until today, but, but now I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those seeds were planted early. In a, in a heartbreaking scene, Peter is forced to kill Ed in wolf form and joins Charlie in killing Jerry with sunlight. Amy becomes human again. Charlie and Amy's relationship is back on, and Peter's TV gig is restored. In the final scene, Charlie and Amy are finally about to get down as we see glowing red eyes in the house next door and hear ed's maniacal laughter <laughs> you're so cool Brewster. Brewster. Ed, oh my god evil ed's laughter will like it haunts me <laughs> oh i know i love it now the burbs this is a zany satirical take on the 80s suburban american dream and keeping up with the joneses lifestyle um and <laughs> you know this again was written by me so it's got some personal touches <laughs> did it teach you a little bit about sexuality also <laughs> no no it did not uh, okay. fright night that's did. probably for the best fright night did but... bruce stern and a mullet didn't do it for you uh Ooh. somehow no <laughs> alas we will we will talk about what does it for me when we get to um uh chris sarandon's sweaters later all right so oh, yes yes we will all right here we go <laughs> Ray Peterson is just a regular old suburban dad with a beautiful housewife and an unremarkable son. He's taken a week off work for a little staycation, but as the movie quickly lets us know, he doesn't do well with unstructured time. From Ray's rear window-esque vantage point, we meet the cast of neighborhood characters. Walter, a lonely old bachelor with a small dog, Lieutenant Mark, a Vietnam vet with an age-inappropriate wife, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, Ar- and Art, uh, the nosy neighbor whose main character traits are loud and fat. I have more mm-hmm. thoughts on that later. So, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, the neighborhood is buzzing because a new family has moved into the derelict Victorian mansion next door to Ray, the Klopex. No one has seen him in daylight, but Ray's son saw them digging in the yard at night. They're definitely weird and creepy, and they might even be European. <gasps> uh, I'm sorry. When Walter's dog is found roaming the neighborhood and Walter is nowhere to be found, Art convinces Ray and Lieutenant Mark that the Klopex must have kidnapped and murdered him. Whipped into a paranoid hysteria with subtle notes of satanic panic, the group invades the Klopex home, searching for murder evidence. They get more than they bargain for when Ray accidentally hits a gas line while digging in the basement and blows up the entire house. Oh, what a travesty the suburban paranoia has wrought. Or <laughs> has it? As it turns out, the Klopex were keeping bodies in the basement. The group of bored white men were right all along. You should fear outsiders. The end. 
Yeah. That was a great synopsis. So you know my feelings about the ending based on that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think like kind of when I was thinking about how to talk about that movie, I was like, part of me just wants to pretend that ending didn't happen. It, you know, it would have been so much better with the ending, yeah. with it ending with Tom Hanks's speech about how they are the problem. Like that's such yeah. a great speech. It's like making a great point about para- about mm-hmm. paranoia suburbia, that kind of 80s moral panic and hysteria that was happening at the time. And then they just ruin it. With that, yeah. with that double twist, I just, ugh. anyway, yeah, those are my it, feelings. Yeah, well, okay, and so that moves us into our feelings check-in, where we talk about how we feel when we watch this movie. Um, and let's start with The Burbs, since we were just talking about it. This, there's something about this movie that feels like a little too slapstick for me, you know? And I wonder if it's just kind of, I don't love comedies in general, although I do love horror comedies, but there's something about it overall that doesn't quite work as a whole like I love the message I love Tom Hanks I love Carrie Fisher um the scene with the bees and the hose are hilarious and I even like um Corey Feldman in this movie (laughs) I do not (laughs) oh you don't I I I like him I can't stand the Corey Feldman character but anyway that's just a person I I find that kind of like hammy 80s like and he like breaks the fourth wall at one point he's like boy the suburbs are wacky (laughs) like I can't right I can't stand the shit (laughs) And that's kind of how I feel about Rumsfeld. And like when I posted that I was watching this, everybody was like, Bruce Dern, Bruce Dern. And I'm sure he is fine. Like he's fine in the role. I just don't like the role. I don't. Maybe it's just like living in the South. And like Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people like that. I was like, no. It made me very uncomfortable. (laughs) And especially when Mm -hmm. like he has like this weird like 20 something like beautiful wife. And he's this old like Vietnam vet. And it it just I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way in in a lot of in a lot of ways. I yeah. I'm not totally criticizing the movie. I'm not totally coming down on it. There was a lot that I liked as well, but mm-hmm. there were distracting yeah. elements. Yeah. What what I love is um and I'm going to post an article that goes into this a little more, but like it's very it's meta too like as far as it references other horror movies which I really like and I think there's a lot of what it's doing really well and I like the overall point I just don't quite love the execution but I think a lot of that was because of the time period what was this 89 you know yeah I I don't like I don't like reboots but I would be down to see a reboot of this me too man yeah well Mike how do you feel about um the burbs I enjoy it. I think it goes on a little bit too long, I think would be the big thing with it overall. Like at a certain point, you're like, all right, we kind of get what you're going for here. Mm-hmm. Let's kind of, this could have been like a nice, neat and tidy, like 88 minute movie. And mm-hmm. it would have been like three and a half, four stars yeah. for me. What I like about it is like Tom Hanks is definitely playing like the straight man role and everyone else around him and Carrie Fisher are just completely banana pants. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and there are things like, Art is this like art is definitely like it seems like a role that was written for Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course said like, that. He's like, you know, I kept Dan waiting Aykroyd. for like Dan, and I think maybe I'd be more sympathetic to that character um, mm-hmm. if it was Aykroyd. But to me, from the minute he's on the screen and he like is like going through all their food and he's like shoveling oh ribs. The ribs and to me like it's... the ribs are a metaphor for cocaine in this movie mm. all right because this would have been like the height of like suburban cokehead mm-hmm. um dads basically so the, to... you know this might be like me being a little too sensitive and i can recognize that but one of my my little triggers is anything that is mocking 
like obesity or overeating or mm-hmm. anything like that. I don't know. I have had like a lot of obese people in my family and I have a lot of like really strong feelings about the way like society and narrative like shits on obese people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, so when I see like characters being characterized that way, I watched some really terrible movie that with my friends on like a bad movie zoom night that we do. And they had a set, like they had like John, uh, John Voight in a fat suit, like eating ca- mm-hmm. chocolate candy bars on, mm-hmm. in every scene. And it was just stuff like that. I find so viscerally offensive. Right. So when I saw this characters being like, I'm just going to eat all the bacon and the ribs and the ribs. I just right. like I can't mm. and then they were like the fat guy over there and it's like he's not even fat like stop he's stop. not and even if he is stop <laughs> using it as a pejorative you fucking assholes but it was the 80s yeah. I know this well as a as a very round human being I thank you for that so um yeah, yeah. I definitely look more and more like John Goodman with each passing year <laughs> hey, that's which, not a bad thing not a, I know yeah, not you necessarily look like... a bad thing <laughs> yeah um yeah. but it's it's one of those things where, like, he's ungrateful. You can see, like, the tension between him and Carrie Fisher's character. And, like, she just wants him out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what's n- interesting is, like, how um, Ray basically allows all of the craziness around him to, like, suck him in just so he doesn't have to deal with his family. Right. He's yes. like, you know, we could go to, like, this house on the lake, which sounds lovely. And I would mm-hmm. really like to, you know, I'm like... I would like to do that. Like I know. we just we just paid for a cottage a year early just to have something to look forward to mm. next year for vacation. We're like, screw it, do it now. Yeah. And I'm like, go to the beach house for like a week. He's like, you know, instead of doing that, I'm gonna go hang out with this like trigger happy Vietnam <laughs> yeah. vet. Uh-huh. And, and this fucking asshole who's running around the neighborhood shooting birds right. rather than like hang out and talk to my wife. Yeah. And which her, I found, his wife like, is Carrie Fisher. I know. Like, who the world want to talk to Carrie The world's Fisher? biggest babe and like I know. tough as na- I just love her so much. But. Who I looks incredible <laughs> she in looks this so movie. Good. Yes she does. You know? Oh, and she's then like amazing. her his son is like such a non entity. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. He's like a little but like I'm like, oh like you see him in his little polo shirts and it's summer vacation. I'm like, this is a kid that caught a lot of beatings on the playground. Oh, mm-hmm. Like you knew that right away. I, I do kind of know? I sympathize with the son because he just looks so disappointed the entire time. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, uh the it's interesting that this focuses so much on the adults when you would normally expect this story to be told from the POV of the son, which is like why mm-hmm. again one more reason that this and Fright Night are kind of inverse of mm-hmm. each other. So mm-hmm. Right. But I do think that like the interplay between Bruce Stern and Tom Hanks and Art and even Corey Feldman, like I think we forget how good Corey Feldman was yeah um in the mid 80s to late 80s before it was like the two Corys and everything with Michael Jackson (laughs) like from the final chapter to stand by me to the lost boys to the Goonies like this kid was awesome like he was so good yeah um and unfortunately you know personal demons and also you know being part of like the teen beat, right. like that became more important than mm. the craft. Um, but I think he's like really fun in here. I get what you're saying, Laura, like that. If you don't like that kind of a trope of a character, he embodies that so well. Um, and he's got some like, like it, it to me is like really bizarre that he would look at his neighbor and be like, oh, Mrs. Rumfield, no tan lines. Like, oh, yes. God. Dude. And he was like staring at her. Yeah. I mean, 
like there's a scene in Fright Night where he looks at that woman's ass or whatever. But again, Fright Night is aware of it being about like burgeoning mm-hmm. teenage sexuality. In this movie, it's more yeah. as like a throwaway. Like we're just going to have this character right. talk about a woman's ass whose, whose character is only there to like be a physically attractive. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's just little things like that that, again, just stuck in my craw. Yeah. Like the joke is that this really attractive woman is married to Bruce Stern's Vietnam vet who's old enough to be your dad. Like, that's it. That's the joke. Exactly. Yeah, that's as deep as it goes. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah. You know, and, and Joe Dante, like, you look at his filmography from Piranha to Hollywood Shuffle to um, The Howling to Gremlins to Gremlins 2 in particular. <laughs> like, there is a subversive streak that's a mile yes. long, and he's mm-hmm. such a smart, intelligent filmmaker. And I think he knows what he's doing here. I think like, it's very intense. Like, it's not by accident that the comedy is this broad yeah. mm-hmm. and stereotypical. So yeah. no, and I, I do forgive it for that reason. I, I totally see that, and I do like Joe Dante, and that's why I don't totally want to sound like I'm coming down on this thing, because I do think mm-hmm. it has really positive elements and it's very like you said it's very subversive i just think it almost got there and i do think this was a thing where it totally felt like some guy saying like making the audience feel self-aware doesn't sell tickets so yeah let's put a stupid ending on it just like the ending to or the original nightmare on elm street like come on like you know Mm -hmm. right exactly yeah as much as i do love that ending like in a bubble yeah it's it's almost like it erases Mm -hmm. the good thing that i really loved because that part at the end is like yeah we just need to end the movie right now right it's Mm -hmm. then it's great and i love it and it helps me overlook some of the flaws that i see exactly Uh, when i think I haven't seen a, a, I haven't seen everything Joe Dante's made, um, but he kind of strikes me as like Steven Spielberg with like a mean streak mm-hmm. to him. Yeah, you know? that's there's like an edge. That's such a good comparison. That is a really great way yeah. of putting it. <laughs> Thanks. And sometimes that works for me, and sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, I th- this movie I I did really like it, and I don't want to come down on it either because I know it's kind of a beloved movie. There's just something about it that doesn't quite work for me, and I think a lot of it is just like the humor of the late '80s. It was just a little off-putting to me. Yeah. Um, It's a product of its time, for sure. It is, yeah. And I feel that way kind of about, like, the Pee Wee Herman movies. Like, there's just... Sometimes when there's a really (gasps) garish quality to it... I do love Pee Wee, though. (laughs) Do you? Sorry. And I mean... And I, I... I say that knowing that it is totally a preference of mine, you know, Mm -hmm. that's just not necessarily something I'm drawn to. But sometimes when a movie has a lot of like visceral moments or like the color scheme is really garish. Like, I think what scared me was the dream sequence in this movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, The dream sequence was my favorite part of this movie. Was it? For sure. Yeah. I thought I I liked it because it was it was it seemed like very self-aware and imaginative, uh, like Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't. I don't know. I just enjoyed it as like a moment in time versus the rest of the film. So I don't know. And it's one of the things like I really enjoy it in theory. I love what like if I read it in a book, I think I would love it. But I think seeing it, there's just something about the imagery that just doesn't quite connect to me. And I think that's kind of overall my problem. Although I do have to say, um, whoever plays Hans, the... um, Oh, the his young, name the is redheaded like, guy. His name is Courtney. Uh, Courtney, some, yeah, I don't. I, but I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. He's one of those '80s actors that pops up. He a lot. is. But yeah. Well, I shouted Outlander every time he was on the screen because he's in <laughs> Children of the Corn. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. He is Children of the Corn. That's why I know his face, yeah. of course, of course. And I have a big crush on him in Children of the Corn. Not so much in this movie, but um, as Hans, yeah. little German Hans. <laughs> yes, in his like weird makeup i like Sorry. how they're like indistinctly european like they're kind of german right. they're kind of eastern european mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah i i do love like that one like the older member of the cloak pack who's just so belligerent the whole time mm-hmm. they're doing like just like it's just like 
hates them and doesn't want them there and makes mm-hmm. no bones about it. Like there's not even like the pretense of trying to be kind at all. Like to me, it's like it's hilarious. Like, yeah, I yes. think that it's I like probably the funniest sequence in the whole. I movie. I like the Clopex. I think most of all, like when they're on screen, I enjoy those scenes most of all mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about how Fright Night makes us feel? Ooh, I've got a tingly. lot of tingly. Apparently, <laughs> oh, Apparently my Jen and I are smashing our horny buttons. Um, <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I posted a tweet the other... I posted a tweet. Um, I don't know if that's how the kids are saying it these days. Uh, yeah, I, but, I, I, tweet, I tweeted a post. <laughs> I tweeted, yes. <clears throat> um, but somebody said, like describe your sexuality and pics already saved on your phone and i just happened to have ethan hawk in a sweater and chris sarandon from fright night in a sweater and i was like okay hard yes hard yes fits. to both yeah. yes because man and growing up i had a big crush on william ragsdale as charlie in this movie um and i he was also in mannequin 2 on the move and i loved that movie and then he was on herman's head so i i don't know if it was the curly hair or something and then i watched this as an adult and i was like Chris Sarandon, oh my god! Yeah, oh, all the way. Charlie is like the, you know, cute boy next door that mm-hmm. looks very non-offensive. Like he's going to be non-offensive to most yeah. people overall. And then Chris Sarandon is just like Whew. cruising. He's like he's just he's oh got bad god. intentions. He's doing he bad does. intentions, but you can't. <laughs> can't say no the moment where charlie tries to punch him and he's kissing amy and he just like sticks his hand up and blocks it and then slowly looks over and like oh my god like my heart grows three sizes every time (laughs) it's oh my god um so i love love this movie um but one of the things i think is so interesting is every time i watch it i like chris sarandon more and not just because he's so hot but like i feel like his character has so much depth yeah and like i start to like look at him I don't know if it was just because we were pairing these together, but I was like, is he the hero of this movie? Like, I know he kills the women and I am not excusing that at all, but like, there's just uh, maybe the way he talks to evil Ed and like how. Yes. Like, well, he's He's so perceptive. Yes. Yes. He's perceptive. Mm -hmm. And and the vampire is a subversive character is a character that's about going against the grain and against the norm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot in here that I could get into about like talking about, you know, when you first start to understand your sexuality and women's sexuality. And I think the mm-hmm. Dracula stories and like in the idea of like women's sexuality and the vampire are really tied together. And like mm-hmm. this idea that like it, it's a thing of danger and you should be scared of it, but it's actually really liberating. And so I think that mm-hmm. that's like why I've always been attracted to that kind of archetype. Um, I don't want to go too down that road because it's a little off topic, but <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of reasons I was drawn to that kind of character and you know, it's a little, yeah. it's a little, it's a little naughty. It's a little liberating, you know? Yeah. It is. At the same, at the same time, like Chris Sarandon's vampire, Jerry does embrace being evil. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. it's not like you have, um, you have like in the lost boys, you have like when Michael is turning, um, that kind of like tortured soul mm-hmm. at that point. Or I think of like Buffy, the vampire slayer and you have like yeah. angel, the vampire with a soul that's, you know, trying to groom a 16-year-old girl for uh-huh. a relationship. Yeah, I hate Angel, together. Team Spike, till I fucking oh die. God. I, yeah. uh, there's, and you know, this, I know this is <laughs> off topic and I apologize, but there's this growing contingent of people that say, like, Xander Harris is the worst Oh, he's, he was always the worst character. Anyway, I'm sorry. I love Xander. Oh, we will have um, to fight. I've always hated okay. Xander. I, so, since day one, I was a Spike girl. 
I hated Angel. I hated Xander. And I can all get fucked. Sorry, 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 sorry. I'm trying to delete it. I'm trying to take it so down. When, oh, no, no, keep it in. <laughs> I know, So keep yeah. it in. So listeners, at some point, we're going to have like a Patreon Buffy yep. show. Okay, it's been, <laughs> yeah. it's been decided. We'll just do a rewatch like, of Buffy and talk but about I'm it. But I'm like, you know, and I'm, and I'm like, but I've always been like, or they hate Riley. Oh, Riley. And I hate Riley, Riley so goddamn much. Yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just met him. So, I'm on the four, the fourth season, and um, I've seen him one time, and I'm like, oh, this right. is Riley. I hate him. I'm supposed to hate him. So Angel, <laughs> so Angel is like 200 years old, grooming a 16-year-old mm-hmm. for uh-huh. a relationship, and Spike has killed like hundreds of thousands of people. Spike did that and without these are a the soul. Two Spike for. did that without a soul. He is a, his story is a redemption arc and he <laughs> fights for his soul. Angel just had it thrown on him and he was being a dick when he had a soul. Spike had yeah. this done to him by Angel and he fights <laughs> for his right to be a good person and he redeems himself and that's why he's the true hero of that show. Him and Buffy. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Also, he's way funnier than Angel. And hotter. He is. I also met yeah. James Brewster's when I was Although, like 19 and he was really nice and I almost died. Aww. Go on. Carry I've heard I've heard nothing but good things about James Marsters as a person, um, but Jerry really embraces being evil. Yeah, he's not. Them. If you on but, paper, you know, he's a bad guy for sure. He's yes. not. He's in no way, shape, or form tortured by what he is. Like he really embraces it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see, like the club scene, for example, he has no problem, like absolutely messing up anyone in that club because uh-huh. he doesn't feel any need hide his nature or who he is because he's so much more powerful mm-hmm. than anyone else. And there is something really freeing and liberating. Like he's pure id. I mean, he basically mm-hmm. embodies the id and you know what we would do if we didn't have these moral or ethical constraints yeah. around us. And there is something that is very appealing about that along yeah. with the sweaters. Yes. yes. Well, and one of the things I think just through the course of my life recently, I've been kind of reevaluating a lot of my belief system. And I have a book called Satanic Feminism. And a lot Ooh. of it is like you're turning away, like Jerry represents like another way, another way to look mm-hmm. at the world and understand it. Like these are the rules that you have grown up in. And like, especially when he's talking to evil, he's like, this is what you know. But I have another way for you. Now, I'm not right. saying that being a vampire is better, but I think they're like what you're saying. There is a liberation there. It's like, oh, I don't have to feel the shame every day. Yes. And I think we could there's a reading of this movie that we're probably going to get into. But yes, comparing him to Colin Farrell in the remake, which I do really love. But like that character, he is just all evil. And he there's mm. no like as much as I love him in that movie because he really leans into the evil. Like, I do think there's a difference between Chris Sarandon's Jerry and Colin Farrell's Jerry, and I do think there is more humanity, because he doesn't want to kill Charlie. Now, that's probably because he doesn't want to have to move, but, like, there's there's just more to him. I I think if you look at him on a symbolic level, he's a really interesting character. If you look at him Mm -hmm. on paper, he murders women. It's not cool, but, you know, I I think that there's there's a reason that sort of myth of the vampire is so persistent, and there's a reason I think also there's a ton of nods to the 1958 Dracula in this film, and if you read the critical reception of Dracula at that time, that was the way Christopher Lee played Dracula. That was the first time Dracula really became you know, intentionally sexual. And that mm-hmm. he's like one of the first on-screen sexy vampires. And that idea of the, of Dracula or the vampire as a seductor is that, you know, and so 
I really think that they are giving little nods to that and doing it from mm-hmm. this like I was a teenage weirdo and I didn't know how to feel about sexual stuff kind of way and it's you know and and it's about that being a little bit off left of center you know and that's why I think right. I really mm-hmm. love this movie and why it resonates with me so much is because hey like they say I was a teenage weirdo this is all the shit I was into it's why it really gets to me you know <laughs> like so mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot there yeah and there's definitely like there's this pers- like weirdos like seek out other weirdos and I mm-hmm. think that's why you see within a few minutes of meeting evil ed like he has him completely pegged he knows yeah. this, this yes. guy's story yes probably even better than the audience does. Like, and I think we're going to talk about the queer coding later on. Um, And I think part of the reason why Ed's death is so heartbreaking is because it goes on so long and it Mm -hmm. feels like a character's being punished. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And I think we'll talk about that later, but he's able to say to him, like, look, you won't get picked on. You won't get bullied. All you Mm -hmm. need to do. And he's very gentle. Yeah. You know, and it's not about power. It's not about revenge. It's about, finding a home yeah. at that point. And I think there's a reading of the movie too where like Jerry would have been a better partner to Amy than Charlie. Yeah, for yeah. sure. To demonstrate him to be. Yeah, Char- you know? Charlie is kind of a dipshit, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, but... As are a lot of 18 <laughs> Well, yes, he is an 18-year-old They are. He, we, let us yes. not forget. <laughs> Yeah, my original synopsis started with um, Charlie while pressuring his girlfriend to have sex with him. And we cut it. We talked about it a little bit because I do feel like it's like if that's the first thing you know about Charlie, I I think he's a better person than that. Although that's how the movie starts. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. And and like eight year old me watching that, like I must have internalized that at some point yeah, you know? and, and I will say it's it's unclear to me in this movie if Charlie I mean until the end again you know because it's an 80s movie and they have to wrap it up in a bow it's unclear to me if he actually does want to have sex with Amy you know like yeah. I think that like it's interesting to me that it starts with him when he finally has a chance like uh, you know and she consents if you will he turns and mm-hmm. looks out the window and gets distracted right. like that feels like I don't know if it was a subconscious or a conscious choice but I do think it's it's toying with that fear of sex and maybe there's a queer reading there as well because he's way yeah. more interested in hunky Chris Sarandon than he is his own girlfriend you know so I I, I think there's a lot going on there that's just below there's... the surface I mean, and there's definitely a pressure when you're a teenager and you're a teen boy to be sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a fear that comes along with it. You know, like this idea that you have to be macho, you have to be tough and you have to like score. Mm-hmm. And at the mm-hmm. same time, like you have no idea what you're doing. Yep. Right. You know, so I found it like very intentional that every time Amy kind of acquiesces and says like, OK, I'm ready. Charlie is very distracted and he makes himself distracted. I think we'll talk about that when we talk more about the paranoia aspects of the movie. Yes. Yeah. Well, and so maybe that's a good segue into our mental health issue for this episode, which we talked a lot about in our Sinister episode. So if you haven't listened to that, go back. Um, That was our first episode in this series. Um, So we're probably not going to talk as much about the like paranoia as a mental health issue right but is there anything else that we do want to talk about yeah when researching this episode um what hit me and i think this is why fright night and the burbs are such a good pairing by lara is like how the suburbs themselves the design of the suburbs and what they do um, can be the root cause of paranoia itself. Mm. So I dug up some uh, various amount of articles from like the New York Times and Business Insider and other places where they talk about evolutionary psychology. And there's a suggestion that humans want 
defined spaces and natural socialization. And these are two things that suburbs often lack because they're really spread out because the homes all look the same. There's like cookie cutter design in so many suburbs that it's very easy to become disoriented and not know where you are and not know what space actually belongs to you and where you should be going. Um, the suburbs by their very design are very impersonal. The other thing too, like things like suburbs basically make you need to have a car. Like mm -hmm. you can't really do public transport in the suburbs. You can't really walk to work or to school in most cases in the suburbs. So you have to like put yourself in this other little box by yourself and drive to get from point A to point B. Whereas if you're in an urban environment, you might just go like right down your stairs and there's the corner store. Or you might be taking public transportation and be around people on the train. Or you might just be walking the streets bumping into people. Um, and one of the things this article talked about was like, even the act of like knocking on your neighbor's door to say, borrow a cup of sugar or borrow a power tool. It's not really about needing that item, but it's more about needing this social interaction that as human beings, we crave physical intimacy, mental stimulation, emotional intimacy and stimulation. And the suburbs often pull that out of us and get us trapped inside of our own heads. So yeah, that's where I was going to say, are you saying kind of like that the alienating nature of the suburbs is what breeds paranoia? Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe mm. it. Calling it very alienating is the absolute perfect word. Um, part of the reason suburbs contribute to that paranoia is because everyone's isolated and in their own little bubble mm -hmm. and also the lack of diversity that many suburbs have like let's face it like there are virtually no characters of color in the burbs or fright night mm -hmm. i think the only ones that we see are police officers yeah, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're both cops both they're both cops mm -hmm. you're right and the lack of diversity it inhibits our tolerance of those that are from different cultures races and religions mm -hmm. i mean i think it's no secret that this year's election is going to basically come down to who wins the suburbs in three states i don't want to think about it i don't want to think about it i don't want to think about it i don't want to sorry I'll sorry push it out i'm <laughs> speaking sorry speaking of paranoia so, anxiety uh, all the thing and toxic and abusive relationships. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, <laughs> the crux of this is the paranoia. The sprawling design can lead to like a disassociated state from other people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's interesting. You're kind of blowing my mind a little bit because I have always lived in the suburbs. Um, same. Yeah. Almost. Almost the same. City girls, well, Chicago it, for life. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Well, it's funny because I've like I have friends who live in Chicago, um, and like you don't have a car. Yeah, no, I've just... no, I don't have a car. I've never had a car in my life. And this this period of time is the only time I've ever regretted it is this pandemic. Really? Yeah, and I'm really upset oh. at myself. I've never actually had a driver's license. And I'm, you know, I'm in my middle, my mid-30s. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I, yeah. my goal was to actually just get a driver's license this spring and take lessons. Uh -huh. But again... Got blown Pandemic. up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And that it, is just so, um, it's just a different mindset because if like in Nashville, you can't get anywhere if you don't have a car. And even right. when I was in college and I lived in the city, like I still needed a car because it's not that like, I think geographically Nashville spread out instead of going up, you know? And so mm -hmm. there's just, even in the city, you still have to have a car. Um, there are like 10 blocks of walking places yeah. in Nashville. This is just a little shout out and a digression for new urbanism. Google it. Yeah. New <laughs> urbanism. Yeah. Yeah. So I pulled this from an article from the New York Times in 1999 
Um, the article is called How Suburban Design is Failing Teenagers because I thought mm. it like really related to um, what Charlie is going through. And it, it was an interview with an author, Joshua Burnett. He was a professor of regional planning at the University of Pennsylvania, and he wrote a book called The Fractured Metropolis. And he talks about how the suburbs are designed basically with every demographic in mind except for teenagers. So small children have these big backyards they can play in mm -hmm. and have like jungle gyms and swing sets and tree houses. And if they don't have that, they have these like giant playgrounds they can go into um, and parks that are like baked right into the design of the of the suburbs. You have like retired couples and adults, like all their needs are catered to in terms of like the layout and the amenities that are there. Um, but there's a lack of consideration for teenagers. Um, and while teens might resist this attempt to like integrate with others, there is a need for them to have places they can come together and hang out and call their own. Mm -hmm. So the end result of like teens in the suburbs is like growing social isolation back in the eighties. So when these movies were made, it would have been like more time playing like video games or on personal computer. Now you see it like, video games, computers, your phones, and this, like, social awkwardness and loneliness. Mm -hmm. So this would have been the heyday of the mall and the arcade. Like, mm -hmm. that's where teens tended to congregate. But even there, number one, those places close by nine. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of back home early. And you have these spaces that are, like, there's clearly defined boundaries. There's clearly defined spaces. There are rules. There's no idea for, like, Free, free expression and um, any individualism at all. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing is just how that evolved over time. Um, in one of the articles, I think it was called literally called Paranoia in the Suburbs, <laughs> this idea that like in the 50s when suburbs first sprung up, you would have like, you would invite your neighbors over because maybe not everybody had a television. Mm -hmm. So you would have like your next door neighbors come over to watch like a ball game or listen to a game on the radio or watch like Bonanza together. Um, or everybody would gather on like these covered front porches and just shoot the shit when the sun went down because mm -hmm. it was nice and cool. What happened over time is electronics and appliances became cheaper and more ubiquitous. So everyone had a television set. Everybody had a washer dryer in their home rather than hanging clothes outside. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a refrigerator and an ice box. And the biggest reason why homes stopped being designed with these like beautiful covered porches, like which is like in the next house we buy is a must have. It has to have a front porch Same. that I can just sit on. Mm -hmm. um, but why that went away by and large is air conditioning. You could stay cool and inside. So the way these things are designed became much different. So yeah. basically everybody got in their own little bubble and got inside their own heads more and more. And you're seeing the idea of like this paranoia in the suburbs creep up because you don't know your neighbors anymore. Mm -hmm. This, the, this, can I uh, have a little digression here? Absolutely. <laughs> this, yeah. just very quickly, I'll say this reminds me of this Tom Waits uh, sort of spoken word song, What's He Building in There? Um, mm -hmm. Which has the lines, What's he building in there? What mm -hmm. the hell is he building in there? He has subscriptions to those magazines. He never waves when he goes by. He's hiding something from the rest of us. He's all to himself. 
I think I know why. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. Yeah. No, that was that amazing. Was, that was referenced. One of the articles I read for this, like, that song was referenced. Really? Like, That's so wow. funny. And it boiled down to, like, he, I think the last line is, like, I have a right to know or something. Yes. Like, yes. this mm-hmm. idea that, like, not only do you want to know what your neighbors are doing, even if you don't know their names, but you feel like you have a right to know. Mm-hmm. what your neighbors are doing. And I'll tell you, like, this is really sad. The people who live, like, almost across from us, they are best friends with another couple that I'm pretty close with, and we barely know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're super nice, and we talk to one another, we pass, but, like, we don't go over for dinners or hang out or have the kids over because their daughter's, like, younger than ours. And it sucks because, like, we all like the same things, mm-hmm. but it's always like, oh, you know, we'll get together soon. But, like, soon just never happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that this may be a reason a lot of horror films are set in the suburbs. You know, I, I don't know. I think that there's something, and I've only now experienced this because you know, quarantine and working and living and doing everything from home, I'm suddenly way more interested in what's happening with my neighbors. I live in a Uh fairly Mm -hmm. quiet neighborhood, you know, on the north side of the city. So it's a lot more residential. Um, So I'm finding myself doing the like staring out of my blinds at the kids across the street, Mm -hmm. like, God damn kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, (laughs) what is happening to me right now? And and I, I, I don't know. I think that like the characters in the burbs wouldn't last a day in quarantine. They would go double insane. Oh no. Well, and that's an interesting thing with quarantine, too, because I have lived in this house for nine years. And now that we have been walking a lot more, I'm seeing people in my neighborhood that I've never seen before. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, like my I have neighbors on like there's a street in between our house because we both live on the corner, but I've never met them. And I have my other neighbors like I know them and we have each other's numbers for like emergencies and they're great. Um, they have cats named Freddie and Jason and he has every Stephen King first edition. Yeah, so I was like, oh, I know. Yeah, he's really cool. And he met Peter Cetera at one point, which is another reason. I love him. <laughs> um, but like we don't hang out socially. Like when we had our kids, we brought the babies over and we just stood on our front stoop. And then like when it's trick or treating, like we see them, but we don't like, and I don't know if that's just because Corey and I are such introverts and we're like very homebody or mm-hmm. if we were both raised in the suburbs where like, this is our house and we don't do that. You know, um, like I grew up on a cul-de-sac and my parents still live there. And now that how that street has like a ton of kids and they go out and they play in the street. Like they had a little badminton court set up at the end of the cul-de-sac. And then like one of the dads, made a path that goes behind the yard so they can connect the two houses yes yeah which is so cool but it also i was thinking i didn't grow up like this like this is you know i I didn't do this did you i did so i literally grew up in a cul-de-sac as well and there was like the there was a giant woods behind our house and we could cut through it to get to the other kids in the neighborhood and it cut Mm -hmm. like 15 minutes off the bike ride and like my yard like kids would come over and play like tackle football in my yard and there was like a swamp that ran the length of my yard Mm -hmm. so you would literally try to like whale people into the swamp when you were (laughs) tackling and like my dad was an awesome cook and like every Saturday we would have like a group of my friends would come over he would cook us dinner we would hang out and then maybe go do something when we were in high school but like every day like we would get together like one corner is where we all played wiffle ball Mm -hmm. one corner like one other cul-de-sac that didn't have like the um 
you know, like the kind of plants in the middle was all wide open. Like that's where we played street hockey mm. until it got like too dark to see the ball. And you would just take like tennis balls off the crotch and be like, all right, got to go <laughs> at this point. This hurts. So we were, we had all of these like neighborhood kids that got together. We had like in high school, like the one friend whose parents are like, we know you're in high school and you're going to drink, give us your keys and you can stay here tonight. Mm. Um, so that is literally what I grew up with. And it was, you know, like I have like really fond memories of that, like mm-hmm. nostalgia porn for me are shows on Netflix, like the movies that made us, the toys that made us, that mm-hmm. new documentary high score about video games in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I drove by my old house the other like probably a month ago. And the dude who lives there now, like they have walled off that entrance. You could cut through and put a sign that says private property. And oh. it's so sad. Uh, to me, it's like, man, it just seems like, why, yeah. like, why are you doing this? So, well, well, and maybe that can lead. Sorry, go ahead, Lar. I just was going to ask how many dead bodies you saw as a group of boys. Six. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to check. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nice. Cool. Six. Any yeah. on train tracks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We um, did have an old farm that we would go behind to go drinking in high school. We definitely oh, really? had, like, yeah. Very yeah, cool. Did have that. Very cool. Well, and so maybe that kind of leads us into another thing that I, I want to mention if we're talking about the suburbs is the reason that a lot of the suburbs exist is because of white flight. Yes. And, like, paranoia of the other or the outsider. And I think that's something we're going to talk about when we get into especially the burbs. But I think, like, putting that sign up that says private property, like, that's like an isolation kind of thing and like I live in Nashville and Nashville is a blue city but like there's very much this attitude of like this is my property I'm gonna do whatever I want on this property Mm -hmm. because it's mine and it only affects me because it's mine and I'm gonna defend it if you're walking past and I think that's something unfortunately we're seeing right now yeah we're seeing Um, the logical conclusion of that American strain of rugged individualism mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. sour as hell yeah. yeah. Like, I have a friend who doesn't believe in paying taxes. Like, <laughs> Good luck. Roads are you good? I know. Yeah. Like, you're just going to build the road between your house and your office, and, like, that's your yeah. road and nobody else. It's just. You got to love a libertarian that, like, is, oh like actually God. wants to drive on public roads and go to hospitals and stuff, you know? I know. Uh, you don't have to love a libertarian. <laughs> Good point, Oh, my Mike. gosh. Good point. <laughs> Corey has heard so many rants about him for me because I just, especially, like, being a public school teacher whose salary was paid by taxes. Like, what do you anyways? But I think there's this like this piece of land is mine and I am. And so it's allowing you to separate so you can be whatever you want. But and then you don't have to worry about what your neighbor thinks about Mm -hmm. you. You know, like you can be as much of an outsider as you want. Yeah. Um, That's why the witch always lived away from everyone else and no one could see what Mm -hmm. she was up to. (laughs) Right. Also, because she was smart. Yeah. She was just didn't want to be around all the assholes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So as we're talking about paranoia, and I think we're kind of talking a little bit more about the concept of it and how it kind of affects large groups of people, but like, is there a treatment for this kind of thing that we're talking about other than just like getting to know your neighbors? The hardest part of treating paranoia is the person who has it doesn't feel they have a problem. Mm -hmm. And they also feel that like, if you tell them they have a problem, then you are now part of this grand conspiracy that is out to get them. Mm -hmm. So you now become like part of that other as well. So it can be really difficult to treat something like paranoia. Mm -hmm. Um, It tends to be an offshoot of anxiety. 
So a lot of the treatments that you would do for anxiety can work for paranoia. So in some ways it would be, and also with paranoia, we talked a little bit about it last week. We talked about how a lot of times it comes down to feelings of inferiority. And part of the reason why paranoia can be, or that delusional thinking can be so appealing is you think that you're like, this kind of mad genius that is making all these connections that no one else can see. And that makes you special. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ties into like these other fear feelings of inferiority. It gives you control. It gives you control. Yes. Or at least the illusion of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because you feel perfectly said. Yep. Accepting the individual, allowing them to express themselves, accepting them for who they are and offering them like universal positive regard and meeting them where they are mm -hmm. going out of your way to build the relationship and build rapport and trust and allow them to build their self-esteem um, that would be helpful along with say cognitive therapy it's specifically attacking cognitive distortions and what cognitive distortions are is this kind of thinking that impedes on reality. It might, in some cases, you can turn that inward, and it might be like how you perceive yourself, like, I didn't get an A in this test, therefore I'm a loser and not deserving of being loved by anybody. Um, or that like things are always going to turn out for the worse, or finding, and with paranoia we saw this, like finding hidden meanings in overanalyzing whatever what someone might say to you like trying to decipher codes or meanings and things that mm -hmm. aren't really there so in the case of like someone who might be paranoid you might work with them on like this kind of what if thinking or catastrophic like exercises in deconstructing catastrophic thoughts so like what if thinking would be all right let's say that this is true that like your next door neighbors are your next door neighbor is a vampire what if he really is like what do you think would happen in that case mm -hmm. and then taking it to its logical conclusion and showing how unlikely that is to actually be the case Mm -hmm. catastrophic thinking is this idea that like of all the possible outcomes you always get the worst outcome and deconstructing that thought and asking like how often does that really happen how mm -hmm. often is it like the worst you know like look there were 2019 years ad before 2020 so all the catastrophic thoughts and all the catastrophic outcomes are just happening to converge on this particular year mm -hmm. but usually things don't turn into such an epic shit show like they are this year my, my therapist has taken me through a lot of this because catastrophic thinking is probably like one of my number one issues yeah. as an anxious person and as somebody with a bit of like, I guess, OCD, you know, obsessive thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, she has she has done that with me many times. OK, let's play this out. And it's yeah. something mm -hmm. I've I try to train myself to do. It doesn't always mm -hmm. work, but it it's hard. It's, it's very hard because yeah. I, I know I, and I'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about what our self-care is right now. Like seeing it written out is a trip, you know, because you're like, oh, mm -hmm. my conclusion yeah. for every statement is something, something happened and dot, 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 I'm going to die soon. Dot, 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 mm. I'm a huge piece of shit. Dot, 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 like they all hate me. You know, it's always mm -hmm. the worst possible conclusion. <laughs> I would say like if you suffer from catastrophic thinking, 
you pretty much could go to your therapist right now, sit down for in the session and start with, I fucking told you so. Oh, I've said it a number of times already. I feel like this is like everything happening right now is an affirmation of ever. Like I've Mm -hmm. trained my life for this. I was born in the darkness. (laughs) So the thing about cognitive behavioral therapy is it's very effective but it's mm-hmm. very difficult and you need to practice it over and over. And I've run like school-based anxiety groups for middle school kids, like seventh grade, eighth grade, high, like young high schoolers, like people that would have been Charlie and evil Ed's age. And the catastrophic thinking is like one of the hardest things. So mm-hmm. one oh, thing I'll good. do, it's <laughs> yeah, it's like they cannot break out of that mold and it's part of because it's where their brain is. So one of the things I've done with kids in particular, let's say someone comes to me because they were embarrassed by an interaction they had with their peers. I'll play a game with them like, okay, who's going to remember this tomorrow? Like, what do you, and they're like, or how likely is it that this is going to bother you tomorrow on a scale of one to 10? And it's usually like a nine or a 10. All right. How about a week from now? Eh, maybe like a six, seven. Okay. How about a month from now? Yeah, four. All right, how about a year from now? Oh, I won't remember it. And you kind of walk them through it. Mm-hmm. And what I'll often do is like when I see them in a hall a week later, I'll say, hey, that thing from last week, how is it? And they look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, see, told you. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, all right, Mr. S. And then they're like, go on their way at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and I'll tell them like, look, the nice thing about being in like junior high is like someone else is going to do something really fucking stupid tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they're going to forget all about you. And that's one of the wonderful things about junior high is there's always somebody there to fuck up. So. Mm. Yes, there's so many wonderful things I remember about junior high. Yeah. It's the worst. Hi. It's the worst. <laughs> it's the worst two years of anyone's life. I really believe that. I actually killed middle school. Like, that was my, like, those were my you glory beat. years. You're like yeah, Matthew I... McConaughey in Days and Confused. <laughs> The thing yeah, I like about school middle is... schoolers is they get Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> high school was actually a lot more stressful for me than middle mm-hmm. school. Um, but I, I, I'm glad that we're talking about this because you're saying things like you just need to trust the other person and you need to accept them for who they are. And that sounds like a great and easy thing to do, but it's so much harder, I think, when there's that fear element. You yeah. know, like if I trust this person, if I walk into this person's house, like that catastrophic thinking comes up and it's so hard hard to turn those things off um but it's like just saying well just trust them and I'm not saying this to you Mike I'm saying like that that presents so many levels like I think we had um we were worried about my daughter socializing for a while and they said oh have you thought about play dates and like the terror that that brought up in me Mm -hmm. to like have to interact with another family I'm gonna have to ask them if they have a gun in their house I'm gonna have to ask them like what like just that is so scary for me as me interacting with an adult and then to like let my daughter like just be in someone else's house and I think it kind of goes back to what we're saying like we don't know our neighbors I don't know what this person's house is like did you have that as a kid like when you were growing up like did your parents call the neighbors and say like you know is there a gun there or 
other things. Nope. Yeah. They did not. And actually, the same house that I was talking about earlier, like I have had a gun pointed at me by a fellow second grader mm. because those conversations weren't happening back then. And like I had a friend and I was just at her house all the time. And she had one of those houses that was a lot more like kind of freewheeling. And then I've also realized like I grew up with a narcissist. So like our house mm. was very contained and we did not have people over <laughs> very often. <laughs> so and I guess maybe I was over there to try to get away from that. But we had I love my mom is a wonderful woman. I have very <laughs> I have grown to appreciate her so much more through the years, especially after my dad passed when I was 19. But we had a room in our house, the parlor. And my friends <laughs> just like nobody was allowed in it. And my mom was mm-hmm. like, I just want one room. Uh, and now <laughs> I, I, I get that. But yeah. like my, one of my best friends growing up is like, you know, the thing about your house, Mike, is like, it's always clean. Everything is very nice. It's cold and no one's allowed to touch anything. And I'm like, <laughs> so, but yeah, like our, my mom in the summer just like opened the door and said, get out. Mm-hmm. I'll come home at lunch or not. Yeah. Just don't die. And then come <laughs> home at dinner and then come yeah. home when it's dark. And that was it. And now like it's, we're in like, we do play. Like, and my, my wife and I, Claire, we're the ones that set up. 90% of the play dates and mm-hmm. our daughter had some trouble socializing when she was younger but last year it just seemed to click and I remember mm-hmm. her teacher telling us like she is the hub and like all the other kids like spoke off of her at this point mm-hmm. and she like they kind of like all kind of gravitate and she's like called kids out if they like make fun of somebody she'll be really? like hey like they're not in the room to defend themselves like that's not Aww. cool and she's like mm-hmm. nine so sounds awesome. that sounds yeah. great. I wish there were more kids like that, especially, I mean, yeah. I, I was Me too. very badly bullied and so, and, yeah. and just, and I was just a total weirdo. I was evil Ed, you know, I was the mm-hmm. one that was into like dark, weird shit. And everyone thought would like mm-hmm. say that I was like doing spells and was like, and called me every on PC name in the book when I was a kid. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was the nineties. Um, yeah. 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 So, so I think that's really admirable of her. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I want to introduce her to my daughter. <laughs> do um, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so maybe that's a transition into talking about these movies, because one of the the biggest things I connected with here was just fear of someone finding out who you are, Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of paranoia of like, if I say this, they're going to find out. Or if I say, if I don't have sex with my girlfriend, they're going to think something's wrong with me. Mm. And then like to take it to Jerry, like if I, if I murder my neighbor, they're going to find out I'm a vampire, you know, or if like the, the three, the Klopex, like, they're going to find out who I really am and I have to hide that because it's not okay to be who I am in suburbia. Cause I think one of the other things I notice is like, there is a, this is the way we are on this street and everybody has their quirks, but they still exist as a, like a unified block. And it's like, there's the pieces of the puzzle and the Klopex are exist outside of that puzzle. It's a very delicate ecosystem mm-hmm. and anything that new that's introduced to it, like any new variable is going to upset that. And they don't mm-hmm. want to have that upset. Yeah. And side note, what are these rundown houses doing? I know. <laughs> on these like regular seasons. These, all these prefab McMansions and then a rotting right. del- like Victorian like estate is just there. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm- it's very like Adam's family house. Yes. You and know? you know that everyone in that neighborhood is like, God damn it. The property values mm-hmm. are going way down. Yeah. A bunch it's of NIMBYs. Like everyone- 
Yeah, everyone's relieved when the house blows up at the end because <laughs> right. they're yeah. like, "We just shot up six figures, baby." Right, you know, right. we can mm-hmm. sell this. They're gonna now. build two houses on this mm-hmm. lot. I've thought a lot about the the queer reading of this movie because I see a lot of that in um, Fright Night, yes. and I, I talked to Terry from Gaily Dreadful about this on the Scarf for Life. Episode that was a we great did. listen, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I thought that was he can speak about that probably a lot better mm-hmm. than I can. But um, he like there's just so there's a lot of underlying homosexuality here. I think some of it is intentional. Like I was reading some Tom Holland intentionally had uh, Jerry and um, Billy, I think, is his mm-hmm. his live in um, oh, the roommate, carpenter. The, the ghoul. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he the intended that to have subjects. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and but I don't think it all is. And I think a lot of the characters or the actors are um, gay. Mm-hmm. And I think, and gosh, I hope I'm saying that right and not offensive. Um, but I think it, it's so. It's, I think there's a level of that just kind of coming out. Right. You know, it's just the humanity of these characters. Um, but I mean, like when Jerry is attacking Charlie in his room, he comes out of the closet. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and there's like this, especially like with the evil Ed scene. Roddy McDowell was a closeted gay person, mm-hmm. and then evil Ed. And I see there's kind of this generational. Um, yeah. relationship, especially with the branding on his face, yeah. which to me was like, oh, if you come out, it's like you have a brand on your face and this is not something that is safe for you and this is going to be what happens. And that's partly why that scene is so heartbreaking. And, and in Roddy McDowell's performance in that scene, it's like he, it's, it's like he's seeing or he's having to kill his own child or something. It gives yeah. me that vibe of like, I understand you. And, you know, because they had this moment where they connected when Ed was still human. And then mm-hmm. he's like, no, this poor boy. And like, you know, he's seeing him go through this literal transformation, you know. And, yeah. and, and I think that this ties back to that idea of the vampire as unleashing a dangerous sexuality. And in the 80s, mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, that was like the peak of, of you know, the AIDS crisis and people really being horribly homophobic and, and, mm-hmm. and that, that the gay sexuality was somehow dangerous. And so I think there is a lot of like subversive coded gay elements in this film that makes it even mm-hmm. more interesting and endearing to me because they were like willing to explore these things, but they couldn't explore it directly. I think horror is yeah. really good at t- like, you know, somebody just said this on a podcast that you're wrong about podcast. It's like it teaches you lessons without you being aware that you're absorbing those lessons. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's a little bit of happening in this with that. So this comes out in 1985, the same year as Freddy's Revenge, uh-huh. which is considered like one of the queerest horror movies of all time. But it, <laughs> yeah. like, like we mentioned how it comes out during the height of the AIDS pandemic. And it's a time where like AIDS was considered a disease that affected homosexual men mm-hmm. and intravenous drug users mm-hmm. and you have a conservative administration that sees they not only see no need to treat this epidemic but they see that they have like a mandate from the people to, to ignore it because of mm-hmm. the sweeping election of 1984 where Reagan wins 49 out of 50 states mm-hmm. and it was like i know well we talk about like roddy mcdowell being a closeted actor his whole life like this is the same year that rock hudson who was considered like one of the leading men of hollywood and a man's man he dies of aids in october of 1985 and it really shook hollywood because he Mm -hmm. had been out 
amongst Hollywood persons who accepted him and cared for him and loved him for who he was. But for, like, the blue hairs that read the National Enquirer, my mom owned a beauty shop with her sisters, so I would go there occasionally. Um, and, you know, you would read, like, the National Enquirer and, like, the horror stories that were written and, like, the way, the titillating nature of the way this was covered and the pearl clutching. Like, mm-hmm. you c- would find it very difficult to come out and have a career still during this time. Mm-hmm. Mark Patton talks about this in the documentary Scream Queens on Shudder. It's so good. It is. It's oh, really God. incredible. And mm-hmm. he says, like, as soon as Freddy Revenge hits, and it's like the number one movie, I think it was the largest grossing horror movie for 1985, but his agent mm-hmm. went to him and said, you're done. Like, you can't play straight. Mm-hmm. And... That drove him, along with the shoddy treatment by Jack Shoulder and the writer, mm-hmm. or Mark Chaskin, the writer of Freddy's Revenge, their treatment of him in the press basically drove him not only out of Hollywood, but really into hiding until about 2010. Yeah. And so when I think about paranoia, like I can't imagine the kind of paranoia you would live with every day of somebody finding out this thing, this piece of your life and never being able to go back and never treating you the same again and I think like when I look at Jerry it's like he offers the freedom of that fear going away you Mm -hmm. know because you are now the powerful one right Yeah, it's playing yeah. with that, that, you know, he has to hide, but he gains power, you know, like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's just playing with that tension. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just so beautiful. And I didn't see any of that growing up. Um, and then until I started to kind of read what a lot of people had written about it, it's like, oh, this is, this is lovely. And I mean, I say that as a straight person who like, I don't find like that's that's not the empowerment I find. Like I kind of look at Amy and I think, oh, you can be like maybe I don't want to be this like good girl who like mm-hmm. has the boyfriend and has and I think there's kind of a, an element of pansexuality to vampires Absolutely. too. Yeah. They are. Which I ready to go. And that's yeah, they are. Yeah, and I think like as as kind of weird as it is the age difference between the two of them, Amy and Jerry, um there's like a tenderness in that scene where he bites her, you know, and the more I watch it um, there's also like in the the disco scene, which God is amazing for so many reasons. But like, there's a, a an accepting her for who she wants to be, you know, well, yeah. not who she's told she's supposed to. He be. He makes her yeah. feel comfortable with her own sexuality, whereas, you know, when she when she takes her shirt off in the opening scene and she's like, "I'm ready, Charlie," uh-huh. she she looks so uncomfortable. Like she's look mm-hmm. she looks down at herself and she doubts herself. And I mean, anyone who was ever a teenage girl can relate to that feeling of like not yep. being comfortable in your own skin. And mm-hmm. when she's with Jerry, it's like she takes off. You know, she unhooks the dress and she just looks empowered. You know, and yeah. if you again, this is a textual subtextual thing. If you look at it text only, you're like, this isn't cool. This like ancient vampire is like seducing a teen. Like not cool, not yeah. cool. But if you look at it from Amy's perspective, like this is the first time she's having something approximating like an enjoyable sexual experience with somebody who is there and like 
ready to have it with her and not like mm-hmm. self-doubting, you know? And I think like it plays a little bit into that like teenage girl fantasy of like the older mm-hmm. mysterious man, you know? So like that part of me is like, hee 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 mm-hmm. you know, so smash the horny button, smash it. Um, this, but... is, <laughs> this is definitely an awakening in Amy. And yes. I think like mm-hmm. you see at the end of this movie, like she has a lot more confidence by the end of the movie. Like she's absolutely, like, I mean, basically Jerry and um, Amy definitely like fuck in this movie. And <laughs> yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and by the end of it, like, she's so much more confident and she owns her sexuality, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, like, it's kind of good that Amy's not in the sequel because I think it shows that, like, she can move on and she can kind of, like, go her own way at that uh-huh. point. Like, she's like, you know what? Char- There's a lot more to life than what, like, Charlie has to offer me at this point. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of really like that. And I like how, you know, like she's fucking hot when she's a vampire. All right. I'm oh, just yeah. gonna say it, like... Well, they make her, they give her, they take away her kind of like girlish childish haircut right. and give her the long flowing locks. And again, we're just playing, you know, cause it, it, it does remind me of like the women in Dracula. Like mm-hmm. when they get, you know, they take off mm-hmm. their Victorian bodice and they're all flowing and it's, you know, that was all part of like Victorian weird sexuality ideas and stuff. But so I think yeah. it's, it's kind of a nod to that and it's kind of just to be like sexy and naughty, but it also has an empowering angle yeah. if you if you want to read it that way yeah especially if you have been told that that is that, that's what I don't want to use the words that I always heard associated with people like that but like I look at someone like Elvira it's like oh you can still be powerful and like it's, Dolly Parton it's, too and it's you know? and it's WAP that's why I love that song I love Cardi B and I love <laughs> Megan Thee Stallion and that's why Ben Shapiro mm-hmm. and all these jackasses got so pissed off at it is our culture mm-hmm. is still not ready for sexually empowered women and mm-hmm. I love right. an aggressive female rapper who is just like aggressively violently sexual about their own sexuality love that mm-hmm. shit because it's like I'll listen to songs like that and I, I've always had issues with my own like being able to express my own sexuality or feeling mm-hmm. like a sexual person and I listen to songs like that and I'm like hell yeah this is on my own terms I am saying what I want and you mm-hmm. can either deal with it or get out of my way and I, lo- I love that shit so like yeah I think yeah. In, in my notes during that scene because I, I write the notes on a pad like when I'm watching the movie I just wrote WAP <laughs> you know? so during that yeah. scene <laughs> well there's a moment where she has like she looks afraid and she it's like she's about to tell him I've never done this before I don't know what to do and he's like no 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 and they don't even say any words but just between them he's like no you don't have to be afraid of this like this is like first of all everybody has a first time right. like nobody quite knows what to do and it's different with every person but it's just like that level of understanding for him I think there's just this this fear that I think is ingrained in us because well I mean I could go on a long um, rant about the patriarchy but it's like if we are viewed as an object like we're supposed to look this way and like to for a long time I thought that being empowered meant that I had to look more masculine and now and I think like I look at somebody like Dolly Parton and I'm like no you can still be really powerful and look this traditional feminine way and I think there's a lot of strength in that Um, it's about doing what you want it is. Yeah. And it's funny to me as I've stopped like going to like I've just kind of reached a point in my life. Where I'm like, I'm just going to wear what I want as long as it's appropriate for work. And I've just noticed I tend to trend more like things that are more comfortable, like higher cut things. And it just makes me think of all of the ways that I dressed before. And it was all to try to like fit into this role I thought I was supposed to play. And I know I'm thinking like we're supposed to be talking about paranoia. 
And I think we are because there's a like the reason that you like the reason that I always dress like that was because I was so afraid that if I wasn't this person, if I didn't fit into this cookie cutter mold, nobody would love me or nobody would take me seriously or no, I wouldn't ever get a boyfriend. And that's how you know that you are a successful woman, you know. Um, So I think it just has to do with these roles we're told we're supposed to play. And I love that Fright Night shows another way. You know, even if it's a vampire. And like, I think I look at Peter Vincent. um, I see a lot of imposter syndrome there. You know, like this is this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what makes me a successful actor. This is even though he knows he's not really a vampire slayer. Like this is this is who I am supposed to be. And I don't feel like that person on the inside, but I can't let anybody know. Yeah. His journey in the movie is like becoming confident in the persona that he's always pretended to be. With the mm-hmm. whole, like, you have to have faith in the cross for it to work thing. Like, you know, at some point, mm-hmm. it's like, to me, that's less about a specific religion and more about having faith in yourself and your own right. beliefs, you know? You know, I, I think that there's an element of Charlie's obsession with horror films and the, and watching mm-hmm. Peter Vincent's show and stuff. And I think that, like, loving horror movies makes people see Charlie as paranoid. Like, of course, this kid obsessed with horror movies would see a vampire next door and imagine this you know kind of thing happening what's really Mm -hmm. funny there though and i think i texted this to you both earlier yeah is Mm -hmm. like for someone that loves horror movies like i know charlie (laughs) knows fuck all about vampire lore like exactly he's a dipshit yeah he just like my neighbor's a vampire and he's like so dumb about it you almost expect him to be like he'll come out at the full moon like could just start mixing monsters up um Whereas, you know, Ed, like Evil Ed is like your, you know, prototype almost for like Randy Meeks, 50, yeah. you know, a mm-hmm. decade later. Because um, Ed knows all, like, why does he have to run to Ed about monsters? Like, how, if he's like accusing his neighbor of being this thing, he might want to know like a little bit about it first, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, if you've watched, grown up watching Peter Vincent, how are you any different than Ed? And why is Ed the one who is like made to feel other because he is, this is an interest of his when it's an interest of Charlie's too. I know it's made, I think that that's a little thin. Like if I had, if I could critique the film, I think they would have made Ed the like horror fan and Charlie is like the bro. (laughs) And then he has to like run to his goth friend who everybody makes fun of. I think that the film didn't fully like interrogate some of those ideas, but you know, so they, they, you know, it's a little loosey goosey there, but I think that's kind of what they were getting at is that Charlie's the more normal kid and, ed is like they never explain why he calls him evil just because he what wears Mm -hmm. like a bomber jacket i can't figure it out (laughs) yeah it's i think it plays a little bit with that idea of like levels of fandom overall like you know ed is somebody Mm -hmm. that is like really immersed in this stuff whereas like but even he knows like dude that well even ed feels like there aren't any vampires like dude like this is bullshit it's entertainment Mm -hmm. um and i think charlie on the other hand is someone who might passively watch something like Peter Vincent. Like it's something Mm -hmm. you have on in the background on a Friday night when you're trying to like make time with your girlfriend, basically, you know, because (laughs) you only have like four or five channels back then. So it's not like you could just kind of go, you know, channel surfing through a ton of entertainment. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, probably wasn't paying so much attention to what he was watching overall whereas like god damn i would have loved to have had something like that like growing oh, up. oh we all wanted that i mean it's the reason yeah. i like any story where you uncover something magical happening it's like mm-hmm. i just wanted mm-hmm. to get out you know yeah. yeah well it's funny i've noticed that i am like the evil ed kind of character 
and I've noticed the level in my new job because I talk a lot about like what I write about and like what I'm excited about. And I'll mention these things. Like I was talking about the new Candyman trailer and like everybody in the room looked at me like, what's that? <laughs> it's like, what? You're not obsessed with this. You right. haven't been like counting down until. Yeah. And it's so it's, oh, yeah. it's kind of interesting, like awakening for me. Like, oh, other people don't like live and breathe this. Yeah. You know? I'm always the weirdo in any environment I go to. And then they always like, well, people will try to make like a dark joke and then be like, right, Laura? And I'm just like, get away from me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, you know, right. I'm always the quirk, yeah. the quirky one. But. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why we get along, too. Yes. I feel like that, too. And especially like, I guess, like living in the South. I keep saying that. I don't know if that's totally fair. But to my experience, like that's not a typical thing for girls to be into, uh-huh. you know? And so I got like, until I started like getting involved in like the horror community, like I didn't have anybody to talk to about any of this. Yeah. And I got, I remember getting so excited about the movie, the loved ones and nobody I knew had ever heard of it. <laughs> and I just was like, Oh, I need that to find some people. Very intense movie. <laughs> it really is. It is. And I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> well, so I, we uh, can talk about it at some point. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, I, I think too, like this is a moment in horror, like the mid eighties, where it becomes a little bit more self-reflective and you have like what's I mentioned this like way back at the start of the show is how like this is there are definitely nods to classic horror here Mm -hmm. and you're in a period of time like you're a year away from a Friday the 13th movie uh, with directed by Tom McLaughlin that's going to have like a lot of gothic underpinnings to it in Jason Lives you mm-hmm. see like these kind of classic monster movies like The Fly is remade in 1988 like Chuck Russell after the success of Dream Warriors like he remakes The Blob so you have like these moments in horror now like Fright Night is very self-aware of the genre and mm-hmm. there Tom Holland is not afraid as much as he loves and embraces horror movies to poke fun at itself, to poke fun at the fans a little bit and to not take itself so serious. Like it's a really self-aware movie um, mm-hmm. well before you had movies like new nightmare and scream and that cabin kind in the of woods, cabin yeah. in the woods, oh, you know, you're next. I didn't come Man. here to die like indie movies like that. So mm-hmm. it's a really fascinating time in horror movies in terms of like what people are doing in the genre, because there's definitely this like, you know, the monster squad is 87. There's a mm-hmm. definite reverence for what came before, but mm-hmm. you're seeing it pushed forward in like these really new and exciting ways too. And that's what I love about Fright Night is that it doesn't feel like it's making a judgment for either sides of that. You know, it's like, this is what was, this is how we get to the next phase. But God, I still love Peter Vincent and we can still like embrace those things. Yeah, he makes that, he has that line where he's like, well, you know, he gets fired from the TV station and he's like, well, Mm -hmm. your generation is more interested in maniacs and hockey masks, like slashing each other, Mm -hmm. you know, slashing young women and you know, my, my way is disappearing, you know, so I thought that was yeah. a fun little nod to that dialogue that was and happening. I know, like, different movie, but, the you know, Joe Dante with The Burbs, like, if you go back and look at interviews for The Howling, he very much talks The Howling comes out right around the time that, like, slasher movies are ramping up, and he's like, look... Mm-hmm. I'm just not interested in these movies where it's like a mass killer with a knife slashing up co-eds. Mm-hmm. Like there's not enough intelligence there to fill 90 minutes. Like give me this more like horror, like the howling is very much a commentary on 
the self-help fads of the early 1980s and like the I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay (laughs) mentality that you would see like when these people went out to their commune. Like it's very much a statement on that. Um, And I think you see in both of these movies like this idea of how this kind of like social isolation can really mess with your brain. And in Fright Night, Charlie is sucking everybody into his world. He's pulling mm-hmm. in Amy. He's pulling in Ed. He's pulling in Peter Vincent going, look at what's happening over here. Why doesn't anyone believe me? Mm-hmm. In The Burbs, Ray is the one getting sucked. Like All Ray wants to do is like drink beer, watch a ball game. And mm-hmm. I, I got the impression that his week vacation was kind of imposed on him due to stress at work and not yeah. so much a planned thing. For sure. Um, and that's why they didn't have any, like, we're definitely going to the lake house this week. Ray is willing to get sucked into the delusions of art and um, mm-hmm. Bruce Dern's character, Rumsfield, as a means to distract himself. Like, now that he's in his home and forced to be his, around his family for a week, he's like, I need a distraction from this. And he just, like, mm-hmm. hones in on the Klopeks because they're other. Yes, yes. I when I was watching this and thinking about the two of them together, I kept substituting Jerry for the Clopex, you know, and like what would this be like if they lived on the same street? Because I think they and I think you're right, like Ray is getting sucked into this. Um and that just makes him such an interesting counterpoint to Charlie. And the moment when they walk into Charlie's room and he has like he's found out about candles and garlic and <laughs> steaks and just like gone all in like maybe you would have more time to go kill the vampire if you didn't make 75 steaks Mm -hmm. and light every (laughs) candle that michaels has um but it's just it's so interesting to see the the two sides of this and how easy it is to get sucked into those kinds of delusions yeah there was an element of like group hysteria and that's why i made i mean the burbs especially made me think satanic panic which was another thing that was you know going on throughout the 80s because the neighbor pulls out the uh the book about satanic rituals and you know they're definitely doing that and it's all these like kind Mm -hmm. of moral panics that there is definitely a reason that you know it's it's basically displacing an anxiety. It's just, and then par- paranoia, like we were talking about earlier, being about trying to find a reason for something happening, for trying to find order and control. Um, the satanic panic was absolutely like misplacing this this fear of what was happening to their children and putting it on the wrong you know, and and blaming the wrong groups of people instead of looking inward, they looked outward. And that's Mm -hmm. definitely what these characters are doing in the burbs. Instead of sitting alone and being able to be alone with their thoughts for a minute, they look out the window and say, well, these people seem creepy. Like, and that's another reason why I think the ending really needed to end with them being the the villains of their own story, you know? (laughs) So, yeah. Well, and there's this element I I feel like, because I'm a, a wife and a mom, Um, And I was a teacher for a long time. So it's like I'm very like I'm filling these roles and I love those roles and I love my family. But there's also this element of like, is this who I am and is there more to me? And that's part of why like I love like doing these podcasts and like writing about hearts because it's like a way to explore another side of myself. And I think like that's what Ray needs. He needs some kind of outlet because I mean, there's like my kids need a lot that like that takes a lot of time and effort. And there is part of me that's like, I just want something else to escape into sometimes. And it doesn't mean I don't love my kids or family like I don't get the sense that Ray doesn't like his family Mm -hmm. I get the feeling that he just needs something else yeah Yeah. 
because he's we're all human we're all human and we need exactly no nothing can ever be centered fully on one Mm -hmm. thing it becomes unhealthy well and if you're not allowed to explore that if you're told this is wrong like if I had like still believed that it's not okay for girls to talk about horror and you should not be putting these thoughts out there um like I would probably have a lot of anger about that that would be displaced onto the person that is allowed to be themselves or that is allowed to kind of explore this different side of themselves and be um just be more who they want to be without having to hide it like I understand there's there's something there's a I guess that's the freedom we were talking about with Jerry is that Ray's just not allowed to do that and so I think his dis his anger is just going to the person that can you know exactly exactly and it, it drives me fucking insane, the ending of yes, it. Yes, I mean, so, me too. So let's have... talk about that ending then, because I think we've okay. danced around it. Um, yeah. I think I know the answer, but what is it about it that really frustrates? It's that they were right the whole time. Right. And, like, they learned this valuable lesson right. about, hey, don't, like, maybe you can trust people that are different than you. And maybe, like, this white suburban street is not the only way to be. And it's okay that these people are different. And maybe you can learn. I mean, you don't have to be best friends with them. It's okay that you don't like sardines because gross. But, like, you you don't have to blow up their house. Right. You know? And that, and that, that like, group has, you know, it's basically, like, it, you know, the narrative is basically, like, we went on a witch hunt and we killed mm-hmm. the witches and then it turned out yeah they were witches because we saw them yes. when they were burning in the flames we saw their demon face and we were right all along right. like uh-huh it's just a complete yeah. they take a subversive story that leads you to think one thing and then they reveal that no you we were we were fooling you and you learn a lesson and then they just completely reverse back up and you know run over the dog you know so it's just yeah yeah hate tom, it. tom hank's speech when mm-hmm. he's basically half blown up um and he's about to go to prison like they read him the laundry list of charges that he is going to get arrested for um Mm -hmm. and he's like you know what like we're the crazy ones we're the ones that are out here peering into windows like and he's Mm -hmm. very much like channeling like jimmy stewart at this like tom hanks is like murdered jimmy stewart and has channeled his goodness and kindness and energy mm-hmm. in acting overall <laughs> i actually wrote down like his monologue because i was just so moved by it and he said they didn't do anything to us all right so they're different so they keep to themselves can you blame them yeah. they live next door to people who break into their house and burn it down where they're gone for the day remember what you were saying about people in the burbs aren't people like skip people who mow their lawn for the 800th time and then snap well that's us it's not them we are the ones who are vaulting over the fences and peeking in through people's windows we're the ones who are throwing garbage in the street and lighting fires. We're the ones acting suspicious and paranoid. We are the lunatics, us. And I loved that. And I wished it's great. It, it's a great. It it's so relevant. There. It's so relevant. Yes. It needed to end there. Roll credits. Everyone in the audience feels like horrible. I love things where they like where things like that just turn around and like punch the audience and like use your own expectations against you. That to me is the essence right. of what satire should be. And this was mm-hmm. ostensibly a satire, and then it fails. And it, you know. Yeah. It's just, oh, it upsets me because it could have been great. I I absolutely, and maybe we'll tweet at Joe Dante and see if he answers. I absolutely Mm. would love to know if like the ending of the Burbs was meant to be what we wanted here. And I think like the cherry that we get, like the little kind of caveat they give you is that like Art's house ends up getting like torched 
and like right as his wife is walking back and like that's another mm-hmm. thing i don't like about this movie is like art's attitude towards his wife like why do i want to yeah. spend a week with her and you know um yeah. it's such like, like bro energy oh, you know <laughs> it's really and i get it like i actually made a comment this week because you know we've been sheltering in place for since march wow yeah, um it, it, you know, and I've said, like, you know, like, at times, like, we're, like, my wife and daughter usually go away for a month to England to visit family there, and I may, depending on my schedule, go for a couple of weeks, but I do enjoy that, like, month to myself and have yeah. time to me. And, like, I've, you know, said, like, yeah, I kind of missed it this year, you know, and, like, we get mm-hmm. along perfectly well, but, like, there's not this outright hostility. Yeah, there's a has. difference. Mm-hmm. Couples should yeah. give each other space yeah. unless, I mean, I think yeah. that that's part of a healthy relationship. Right. Never want to shit on that idea. But yeah, there's a difference between like openly hating your wife and talking yeah. shit about her to your friends and, and being like, hey, let's have a few weeks apart. Art mm-hmm. is no fucking prize, right? Oh, I mean, no. art is just like, I think you had said, Laura, that he embodies like the ugly American. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he yep. is the poster child for it. Like there is nothing likable or sympathetic about him as a character at all. And I think it's really well played. Like, I don't think you're supposed to feel sympathy for him or for Rumsfeld. Mm -hmm. All of your sympathy is really, it goes to America's dad, Tom Hanks. You know, I mean, really you do feel for him because at the center of it all, it feels like very much like Ray is like somewhat self-aware. Even before that Mm -hmm. speech, he knows how much of this is bullshit, but Mm -hmm. He just, it's like. He gets sucked into the kind of group hysteria. He goes against his own instincts. So it's the, like you said, the inverse of Fright Night where the main character is sucking everyone else in. The main character Mm -hmm. gets sucked in and then Mm -hmm. lives to regret it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to compare him to Rumsfeld because I think he is another side of that, like, typical ugly American kind of attitude of, like, defending. Like, how many weapons does this guy have? You know? Um, and, and it's interesting in a movie like The Burbs that is all about crossing boundaries, like for art to stand out so much about him not respecting boundaries. Because that was the first thing I noticed about him. I was like, if I was Carrie Fisher, I'd tell him to get the get fuck the, out of my fridge. Why are you eating my fuck? Yeah, are you fucking, those are for exactly. dinner, you piece of shit. And I mean, complaining no. about it. And complaining yeah. about it. Yeah, I, I think in my notes I wrote Carrie Fisher probably had to like give so much restraint to play this character mm-hmm. because she was mm-hmm. always super outspoken. Her character in this movie couldn't be more different from Carrie mm-hmm. Fisher as a person. So this hats off to her acting job in this mm-hmm. film. <laughs> you know. So I'm going to link an article because I found something talking about the ending. Not specifically, but just talking about how making a satire or a, a horror movie about paranoia is hard because is the boogeyman going to be real in the movie? And if the boogeyman is real, then your character isn't paranoid. And if the boogeyman is not real, can your movie be scary or are there effective stakes? And I think the burbs does that. It does. It like makes a really effective commentary and satire about paranoia. And then it just erases everything. Um, so Melody Danielle Rice for Film Inquiry wrote, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers shows why it's so hard to make a movie critical of paranoia in Hollywood. The need for the boogeyman to be real. Can a film actually be critical of paranoia if its source is real? And I wonder, like, that was the studio saying, no, we really do need them to be evil. Like, what, what are you going to do? You, you, got, you got to have Freddie jump out at the mm-hmm. end, you know, or it's not going to sell. And I just, it's so... 
I think it would have bumped up at least 20% how much more I liked this movie. This is if, why capitalism ruins everything. Yes, go on. Yep, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about as far as paranoia in these two movies? Well, I only have one question, and that's why the teen disco in Fright Night has a full-blown Italian chef working in it. That's all. Yeah. That's my last it's, thought. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> yeah, it is a very strange scene. And I think young me watched this thinking, is this what teenagers do? Yes. And they go no, to a, di- really. a, a dine-in discotheque. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't remember anything like this growing up. No. Now, we had dances at my school, yeah. but like they would have known if a vampire was there because mm-hmm. he wasn't a student of the school, you know? Chicago um, had had some places that kind of approximated this, but not. Like, there was one that um, called, Med- I think it was called Medusa's, but it sort of ta- it ended in the early 90s. Um, it was an all-ages dance club and if you if you read the book American Skin it's it's fictionalized in that book and it's a big thing that was like really integral to the goth and new wave all ages community mm-hmm. um, and it's a, it was a very unique Chicago story so if you want to look up a cool story about a really unique place that was a big part of the goth and new wave movement Chicago cool. Medusas but that was not a normal thing yeah. you know especially to yeah. be in the suburbs Cambridge Cambridge Mass had that like there was a in in Central Square there was like a number of clubs like the Middle East and TT the Bears and there was like that goth like new wave club like the Man Ray uh, I don't mm-hmm. remember I think I went a couple times in the early 2000s but I would have been over like 21 by then so I don't remember if they were all ages but it wouldn't have been like the kind of place you would find in the suburbs at a school night it would be right. open so like the bronze and buffy the vampire slayer like. yeah it's yes. ridiculous ridiculous mm-hmm. i love it i love watching mm-hmm. chibo Matto play mm-hmm. a small town in california at a teenage nightclub right it's so silly yeah. well and that's one of the things um that i do really like in the remake of fright night and i i am aware of like i don't think the remake is better than the original partly because I love the original so much, but I think the way they updated it and to set it in Las Vegas yeah. was really smart. And kind of what we were talking about earlier about the, di- the, the relationship between Evil Ed and Charlie, I think they did that in a very interesting way in the remake because it was more about like bullying and like just outgrowing your childhood mm-hmm. and like the friends that you leave behind and why... And if that's because sometimes that's just the way life is. And then sometimes you do it to kind of fit into that role that you were always told you're supposed to play. Um, and I think the the nightclub scene feels way more believable to me in um, in the remake mm-hmm. just because it's Las Vegas. Yeah. So, of course, they would have that, you know. Yeah, And, and I do really love. Sorry. Go no, ahead. you first. Go ahead. No, I was going to talk about nonsense. So go ahead. I was going to say, nonsense <laughs> is awesome, though. I was saying, well, that's the, true. <laughs> the remake is a good example of how you can take a beloved property and update it and do something really smart and make totally it its agree. own thing. Like, take the mm-hmm. core elements and make it its own, and they can stand apart from the original movie. When I learned not to trust Stephen King remakes was with Carrie, the one with um, yeah. Julianne Moore. Because that's what I wanted them to do. And there's so much material there to make like a different story, mm-hmm. but still have the same seeds. And they didn't. And it just enraged yeah. me. I hate when that's why I've never actually watched the Fright Night sequel because I assumed that that's what would happen. I mean, not the sequel, the um, the remake. The remake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now that you guys are saying this, I might immediately after recording this go and watch it because now I'm really curious. It's, but I, 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 I love it's it. It's worth a watch. It's definitely I haven't it watched is. it since theaters, but I know it's one mm. of those things we'll get along around to in my other show eventually. Yeah. But I remember really enjoying it. 
I do like Colin Farrell too. Yes. So. Oh yeah, he's great in this, but it's a different like it's it's a different kind of vampire, you know. Mm-hmm. This was one um when I was teaching, I would have to do portfolios every spring break and it would take like the majority of my spring break and I would put Cabin in the Woods and the Fright Night remake on and I would just switch them back and forth and just have them on in the background until I got done with them. And it's just one of those movies. I don't think it's perfect and I can kind of see the flaws, but like it's got Tony Collette. It's got Anton Yelchin. It's, it's Oh, Anton really... Yelchin is in it. I love Anton He's Yelchin. Charlie. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. immediately going and watching and this. Peter <laughs> Vincent yeah. is uh, David Tennant in this movie, mm-hmm. so... Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. And he's like this kind of what who's the guy Peter that he's Cr- kind of Peter Chris? Oh, no, Peter, Peter Chris is Peter from Cushing. Kiss. Peter no, Cushing. He, uh, the, who's the um Chris Angel? Uh, Chris Angel. Yeah. He plays mm-hmm. like Wait, a he's Chris, playing like kind of he, that type he role. Plays a he plays a Chris Angel. Oh, I was like, why are you guys talking about Chris Angel? Yeah, oh, so okay, now I understand. Yeah. It's okay. worth a watch. Yeah. Um it is. Can we circle back to Evil Ed for a minute? Yeah. Because yeah. we had talked mm-hmm. about his death scene for a moment. Oh, and I yeah. think it's really interesting that you said like a that in some interviews with Tom Holland that like the queer interpretations of it were very much um, put in there like purposefully because I felt like watching this movie again, the death of evil Ed is really sad because it feels like he's being punished. And even though it's not explicitly said in the movie, like evil Ed is a gay character. I think that it becomes, especially as our understanding of the movie grows and that time period grows it's uh-huh. very much you're aware that that evil that is written is gay. And yeah. even if the filmmakers weren't consciously aware of it, they were consciously aware that he was different. And mm-hmm. that scene is so heartbreaking because it feels like he's being punished. He Go gets ahead. a very long and drawn out and agonizing death. It feels very unearned. It's like, why is this happening to him? You know, like he doesn't know. deserve. And I think that that's that's where I sort of doubted my enjoyment of the Chris Sarandon character because it's kind of like he tra- changed him and then left him mm-hmm. to the wolves, as it were. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so so I I was very much off put by it, and I I didn't I didn't love the ending where it's like, but he, is he dead? Like, what does that mean? What are we trying to say right. with that? I took that yeah. directly from vampire lore in that I could because. Um, Peter Vincent deliberately removes the stake mm. from him. Mm. And from my understanding of vampire lore and God, I'm hitting the nerd weeds now um, <laughs> is if you remove the stake, the vampire reanimates. Oh, interesting. Mm. I was wondering if like, because he stabs um, Chris Sarandon in the heart, Dan- Jerry Dainbridge with a, with a stake. And then he rips it out of his own chest. And the only thing that actually kills him is sunlight. So I thought maybe, this, these vampires can truly only be killed by sunlight, you know, but, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's a bunch of nerdy ways to interpret it. <laughs> well, one of the things I think is kind of nuts about this movie that makes me love it is like, what are these vampire rules? Like, what is Billy and why does he like die in like green goo, you know? And how does like evil Ed turn into a wolf? Like what part of, and I like, this was the first vampire movie I'd ever seen. So like these laws these are my vampire rules. Vampire you know? rules are so funny. It's like it's a thing you can really get into. And I, I, I love the I've always loved the metaphor of having to invite them in as yeah. like, you know, it's as a thing for like, if you don't set boundaries, then bad things will come into your life. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, what was I going to say? Like the movie Let the Right One In is really playing with that, which would also be a really good movie to cover from like a psychodynamic perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, my interpretation of the what is the character's name? The Living Carpenter. Um, Billy, is, I think. Yeah, that he was a ghoul. Like, there's this idea of, like, I think, like, Rum, uh, Renfield. Renfield. Renfield is, like, you know, they're the mm. ones that the vampires feed them their blood, but they don't, mm-hmm. um, 
they don't drain the blood so they become almost like a slave you know like somebody that's mm-hmm. that's bound to you and is doing your bidding uh also if you want to see a show that has a ton of fun with vampire rules is what we do in the shadows <gasps> yeah oh my god i love that show so much the movie is great and i was a fan of the movie and then the show just takes it to new levels and i just mm-hmm. I, and matt berry uh yes anyway oh my god yeah I love the it emotional so vampire versus the energy yes, vampire yes that guy is uh mark mark uh I can't remember his name. That actor is so funny. I, I love oh that God. show to the it high is. heavens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it's kind of playing with that in the same way that I think Fright Night kind of is now that I can look at it after having read Dracula and seeing like the established lore. I think it kind of, and I love that about vampires is like, well, this one is a little different and we're just going to kind of do what we want. And like, I mean, sparkly vampires are a thing, although that might be a conversation for another day. But like, <laughs> I, I just kind of love that. Like Jerry is just who he is and that's who he's going to be. And he's going to be the gosh darn best vampire he can. With the <laughs> um, he, he doesn't look into a mirror and then says, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> so kind of moving on. Um, are there any other mental health topics that we see here um, that we we've kind of talked? I think paranoia kind of is a broad topic that's kind of touched a lot of things. But is there anything else that we wanted to mention not to go into depth for, but like that we don't want to let go by? I think we've covered most of it. I had noted like the idea of social ostracization, oh my God, and bullying and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing and, and what that does to a person. Um, but I mm-hmm. think that we kind of we did go over that so yeah 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 I think there's the, like the the only other thing that kind of stood out to me was the um the mom pushing Valium is what I wrote right. in my notes but like this that idea of like um self-medication mom you know? is horny like mom is yes like... she's the divorced mom that just wants a, a good man you know to come yeah. to move into the neighborhood yeah. yeah mom just wants to see her boy smash bits like really I she's... know <laughs> Yeah, that incredible. was not my parents, by the way. No. <laughs> like, when I was in college and was home for the summer, my mom found my protection. And then when I wasn't there, had a talk with my then girlfriend. Oh, no. She was not my oh. then. By the time we went back to university, we were no longer together. Yeah, that ended. That, that, is, was that is traumatizing. I'm sorry. Very traumatizing. <laughs> Uh, so. Oh, I shudder to think. Oh God! Oh, it's like I was cornered I by somebody's mom who I was like dating their child, and they were like, "Talk to me about condoms." Or so I can't imagine. I would just. Oh my yeah, God! Yeah, it was yeah. not a good conversation. Mm. Um, what a downer well, to end on. All right. I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. Um, well, we'll bring it back up. Don't worry. Okay, so let's talk about what other movies that we see this kind of paranoia in. And again, not going into detail about it, but just like if you're interested, if you really enjoyed the feeling of these movies, what else would you, could you maybe check out? Do you guys have any suggestions? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, either Mm the 50s or 70s. I'm a huge fan of the 70s version of that. And I love the 50s version. I love, I think it's one of my favorite movies of that era. I haven't seen either of those, but I have seen The Faculty, I will say. There so. you go. Um, the Thing, I think, is a great yeah. take on paranoia, especially group paranoia. getting into the AIDS crisis of the early of the early 80s and like the start of mm-hmm. that time. Um, those mm-hmm. are what comes to immediate mind. I was just going to say, it's not really paranoia. Just watch the 1958 Dracula with Peter, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. If you mm-hmm. haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I guess maybe we could recommend Freddy's Revenge also as kind yeah. of like a, mm-hmm. a movie along the same lines, not necessarily seeing paranoia, but like but, there's a lot of the same uh-huh. kind of elements. Yeah. And there's that fear of like something inside yourself coming yeah. out, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, this is more mood related, but not paranoia related is um, the burbs made me think of something but trouble. And it's funny that you brought up Dan Aykroyd earlier because Dan Aykroyd mm. plays an absolutely atrocious character in nothing but trouble. It's a terrible <laughs> movie, but it's, it's, I remember watching that and being like, what is, this? Oh, it's so upsetting. It's such an upsetting movie, but I, really I, I recommend it just if you want like a terrible, bizarre movie to watch that has this kind of campy eighties vibe to it. So sold. Yeah. And I think well, you, and you thought about The Mist as well, right, Jen? I did, yeah. Um, When we were kind of trying to decide what movies we were going to do, we kind of revamped this because I think I had a feeling in my mind that I wanted to talk about. And I think The Burbs is really what captured that feeling. And, of course, I'll always talk about Jerry Dandridge. Um, But The Mist also kind of has that same feeling of, like, who are we afraid of? Who are the others? Who do we see as the others? And, like, is that justified? So I think The Mist is a fantastic um, representation of just kind of that same feeling of like who can we trust who am i in society and who am i supposed to be you know? i would love to see us pair the mists with ty west the sacrament oh, i haven't interesting. seen the sacrament yet i have seen I will, it i have seen it I, it's, i'm down for that jo- it's basically jonestown but it's, set in the modern yeah. day <laughs> it's it's jonestown and i i love anything that aj bowen has done Except mm-hmm. for Creep Show Three, um, but I I really like that movie. I think that might be a good pairing for future episodes. Well, stay tuned, guys. Yeah, and as always, if you if you are who are listening, yes, you, George. <laughs> sorry, you. Um, I hope there's a guy named George listening. But if, if you, you're if, George, let us know. <laughs> yeah, please do. I, I'm speaking to you, George. Uh, if you have any other movies that you think also fit into this this category for whatever reason, share them, tweet them at us, yeah. post a tweet about it. So now I think that's a good segue into our uplifting moment where we kind of lighten the mood a little bit and kind of bring you back up to being able to like interact with the world around you. Um, And so we're going to talk about our coping techniques or grounding techniques and a little bit of our self-care right now. Um, And we've talked a lot of, I feel like we talked a lot about self-care in the last episode, but I just want to reiterate, self-care should not make you feel bad about yourself if you're not doing it the right way or you're not taking, like, don't, self-care is supposed to make you feel good. And if it doesn't make you feel good, then try something different. You know? Yeah, or don't worry about it. Don't worry oh, exactly. about doing self care. <laughs> you know that's like, right, exactly. the opposite of the point. You know, there's no right way to do self care. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, does anyone want to talk about anything they've got to share? Um, I do have a thing. Hold on, I'm, I've got a, a prop. Um, <gasps> it's this thing that I ordered online because it was advertised to me on Instagram, and I've been finding it pretty helpful. I'm a little disturbed that Instagram knew to advertise it to me, <laughs> but it's called the anti anxiety notebook. Ooh. Um, and it's hmm. it's this nice, yeah, nicely bound journal that is basically cognitive behavioral therapy and other essentials, as it's called. And it's made by therapists. And it basically has little lessons in the blue pages. And then the white pages are logs. And on the logs, you are asked several questions. It's what happened? Describe the situation. What is going through your mind? Describe your thoughts. What emotions are you feeling? Um, Note the intensity on a scale of 1 to 10. 
what thought patterns do you recognize? And they have suggestions that are in an index in the back, and that includes catastrophizing, all or nothing, magnifying the negative, self-blaming, et cetera. Um, and I've definitely noticed some patterns so far in my own thoughts. Mm. I was aware of them before, but it, man, when you see it in black and white, it is bizarre. Uh, and then how can you think about the situation differently? Challenge your thoughts. And it, uh, every log comes with like a little tip or note from the therapist. And um, I guess I was hitting a wall with how I've been feeling lately. And that inspired me to order this. And unlike a lot of other CBT books that I've purchased or looked at over the years, this really is designed like a journal. And the mm. lessons are very integrated into that journal format. And that is making me want to use it. It's also really pretty and like, I don't know, it just makes me want to use it. And I've been actually being somewhat consistent with it, which I'm sure I'll burn out on in a week or two, as I always do. But so far, it has grounded me a bit when I was feeling really like I was about ready to spiral in terms mm. of my anxiety with everything going on, especially um, just right now. How, you know, how much, it's bad. How much is it, if you don't mind me? Uh, I think I think that I, I glanced at the name. Also, the name, if you want to buy it, it's at therapynotebooks.com. Mm -hmm. And despite the plural in the URL, it's really just the one notebook right mm -hmm. now. Uh, and I think it was $40 and then marked down to like $33 nice. okay. or something like that. It's a little pricey, but I... Um, I was, you know, the, the marketing worked on me yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't know. I just think it's, I, 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 I am able to do this because I've gone through so many years of therapy and right now I needed homework. I mm -hmm. needed something concrete mm -hmm. to do. I'm really somebody who thrives with structure and I've felt mm -hmm. really like I've had no structure lately because of everything. And this is giving me a tiny bit of structure, even with talk therapy. Sometimes at this point, I feel like I'm just treading the same ground. Yeah. I'm not really making progress. So this is just something with the, the, the groundwork I've already done over the years is allowing me to do something like this with some success. Um, I, I think it's, it's best paired with actual therapy, like with mm -hmm. another human, but um, I've, I've found it very valuable mm -hmm. so far. So, yeah. Very cool. When, um, when I was teaching, we did um, restorative practices was a technique that we were learning. And one of the questions is what happened? And they said, phrase it as what happened, because that takes all of the emotional charge out. You're just stating, you're not saying, what did you do? Or what did they do to you? You're saying, this is a fact that happened. And then I think it's easier to kind of, I guess it ex externalizes it from the emotion. So that's interesting. It, it, and I've found that that's what has been helping me is like, I know that I have this catastrophic thinking and things kind of spin and pinwheel out of control in my head. And when just the act of writing it down, it feels a little bit like you're exercising it or like, okay, I've acknowledged the thought today and now I can let it go and not get mm -hmm. like to the point where I just want to lay in the fetal position on the couch, you know, which is mm -hmm. not, not a great reaction to always be having every single day. Um, yeah. I, uh, once in a while, a fetal position I do recommend, but <laughs> not as an everyday habit. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm finding it very helpful. Cool. I, that sounds like something I would definitely need to check out because I really like the idea. And I've used workbooks like that in the past. I will say I started using a workbook before I was doing actual therapy and it did get me to a certain point. And then I kind of got to the point where I was like, no, I don't I don't know what to do next. Yeah. So I do think a lot of times those are paired with actual therapy. But I also understand like therapy and I might not be available to you right now. And like there are a lot of different ways to go to therapy. And I don't want to um shame anyone or sound like we're saying therapy is the only way I do think that that's a fantastic thing to do and I want to destigmatize it but 
I know that that's not available to everyone. Maybe maybe an idea. This is just an aside. I know that there are a lot of resources out there that are available, like on a sliding scale, or mm-hmm. that are you know because I think one reason that a lot of people don't seek therapy is they're afraid of the cost. It can be prohibitively yeah. expensive. Maybe you don't have insurance. Um, I know there are resources out there that are low cost, and maybe that's something we can work toward is compiling mm-hmm. some low cost resources. And and a mm-hmm. notebook like this, you know, it's a little pricey for a notebook, but it's a lot cheaper than therapy. So, right. you know, I mean, it's, it's all about trying to use a variety of tools to meet you where you are, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's all you should ever, you know, be trying to do is just do your best and do what you can. Yeah. Mike, do you have anything you want to share? This is going to be really weird, but I have been, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, so a couple of weeks ago I went to visit mom, uh, and she did not discuss condom usage with me which was really nice <laughs> oh good she does not great. every single time okay no, i mean you have a child time. so i'd hope she this was a one-time <laughs> thing um okay, no. but she was like hey i have this like air fryer uh that like one of her friends gave her like my mom befriended this woman who came over from vietnam and actually bought the beauty salon that my mom and her sisters owned that their mother owned before it Um, They sold it to her and my mom stayed there to work for years. And this woman sees my mom almost like a big sister that they talk on the phone all the time. And they have like very little in common, except they're both like hairdressers. Um, And this, whatever reason, like they really click with one another. And it's really, it's really, she comes to a lot of our um, family holidays, uh, like Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that and Easter, like she's always there. So she gave my mom an air fryer. My mom didn't want to turn it down. I promise this is going somewhere. I, you know, so my mom is like, you know, do you want this? And it was unopened. And I'm like, I really don't. But I can tell my mom wants to get rid of it. So like, I'll take it on a lark and we'll never open it and brought it home. And then I'm like, "Ah, I'm going to try it out. And I started to cook with it. And it's awesome. So I find myself, (laughs) it's so good. And I, now we want a bigger one to make like bigger (laughs) meals, but I'm like cooking like really good, like air fried chicken and fries and potatoes and like zucchini and summer squash, like chips almost. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm like really enjoying it. And like, I love to cook, but in the summer, you know, we don't have, we don't have a grill. Uh, I -hmm. forgot to pick one up this year. And we like scrapped our old one in the summer. Like, I don't really want to turn on the stove and do a lot of cooking. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you just go without. So I find myself like using this thing and like, God, I made something the other night where it was like, um, fried, oh, like, um, fried fish fillets with it and then French fry. And it was like really good. And I'm like, so it's just like a lot of fun to kind of cook with it. And I think cooking is like a really fun way of doing self-care and then we'll like have a meal as a mm-hmm. family usually gather in the living room and like watch a simpsons episode together and kind of hang out and do that so it's Sounds definitely delightful yeah that has been uh my self-care is using an air fryer that my mom <laughs> re-gifted me and what's funny is when i called my mom and told her i'm like you know i just want to let you know like it's awesome like we really like using it it's great i really appreciate she was so excited we liked it but then she's like, tell me how it works. So when Diane asks me about it, I can like tell her what I've <laughs> like, what do you cook in it? How does it work? How long? So she was like, totally like, <laughs> she didn't want to hurt this woman's. And like Diane yeah. has given our daughter gifts before of these really terrifying dolls. And you're like, 
thank you. This is yeah, a we've got some of those. Fuel. I love um, that. I love it. But we, um, so my mom was like peppering me with all these questions, and it was really cute because you know yeah. you could tell that she didn't want to hurt her friend's feelings and say like, mm-hmm. oh, I gave it to my son. But she also was like, I don't really have a use for this at this point. This is so. going to turn into a sitcom where Diane is going to be expecting to come over and have an air fryer no. meal. And then you're going to have to come there with the air fryer. And then at some point, she's going to see that it was like, she listens to the podcast. I'm trying yeah. to write a Frasier, right. Frasier episode. I was thinking it's the Frasier episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my mom uh-huh. could have to- totally been a sitcom. She actually, my mom looks just like Dee Wallace Stone. Like, oh, really? to the point when that show, I think it's like Strange Magic, um, mm. the one that was on Amazon about the girls that get these recipes. Like, my daughter watched it when she was really young, and she was like, that's Nana, when she was on the screen. Like, it's uncanny how yeah. much my wow. mom looks like Dee Wallace Stone. And my grandma always looked like Kathy Bates, and so I every time I would see Kathy Bates as a kid, I was like, mm-hmm. Grandma. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is kind of making me wish that we recorded in person because all of those fried things sound delicious. delicious. Yeah, I hardcore want this. I want this. I know. Um, yeah, my self care, I was trying to think because I really have just kind of been trying to listen to what my body wants to do and just do that. Um, but today I really needed to get out of the house. And so I drove to Starbucks and I got a pumpkin spice cold brew, which was very good. And it was a nice little treat for myself. But what I noticed was like how much I missed driving, Mm -hmm. which is, I guess kind of funny because we were talking about that earlier. And I think like when I watched the movie us, this was something I kind of honed in on is the, like, as someone with PTSD, like I think driving is very soothing to me in a lot of ways. And I don't even really have to be driving, just being in a car. It's like, you're not really, you're kind of in transit and like things are passing by and you don't have to focus. Um, and I don't have to process the destination and I can kind of leave the past behind. And I like, I drive around my neighborhood sometimes just to kind of, I I guess, dump the pressure off, Mm -hmm. but it just, I really missed that. And so that's, I might need to, like, I've been walking, but it's not quite the same thing, you know? Um, and I also wanted to say, I don't know if this is necessarily a coping thing, but I kind of had a little, um, kind of breakthrough in therapy this past week because I've kind of had a big life change in the past couple of weeks and I've, it's been kind of hard to try to figure out how to emotionally handle it. And I found myself saying like, I'm waking up sad And then I do my morning things and then it kind of goes away. And it just, I I noticed that I was just saying, I am sad right now. And the element of fear and trigger was not part of it. Like it wasn't like, I'm sad. I I did something wrong. I have to fix it. And like this panic that comes up in me to try to fix that sadness. It was just, I'm sad. I'm going to give myself space to be sad right now. And I'm going to do a thing that I know is probably going to make me feel better. And then maybe I won't be sad anymore. And like if most of the time it works and if it doesn't, then I just, uh, I can be sad. And it's not like, I guess maybe it's ties into the catastrophic thinking. Like me being sad is not the end of the world. And it's just an emotion that I'm feeling. And then kind of it, it passes, you know. That's great. So that was, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really great. 
it kind of I was talking to my therapist and she was like, yeah, <laughs> like she I could see her kind of getting excited that I was kind of starting to see the difference of like that sadness and the fear element to it, uh -huh. you know, and kind of separating those. So that was just kind of a little moment that I had I was like, OK, this work, it's really hard work, but like it pays off. And sometimes when you can like recognize those successes, you know, or like like you were talking about seeing something in black and white. It's like that's a, a thing like that's that's the reason that we do these kinds of things and that like I guess we have the podcast and we talk about is because it doesn't happen right away um but it does happen you know it can and you Absolutely. can you can get where you want to be you know yeah I love that I think that's such a great takeaway it's yeah just, Agree. it's great Agree. I love it <laughs> yeah and it sounds weird for me being excited to say oh I'm sad you know because it seems like it would be the opposite but no. it was just like acknowledging that that's an emotion I can feel yeah. and it not like destroy me yeah was, like, Th these things really these things come and go and, and that's yeah. part of the human experience and, and not having to be afraid of your own sadness is such incredible growth and it's so important and yeah, yeah. that's awesome I love it it was you know, I kind of patted myself on the back I also had my therapist tell me she was proud of me recently and oh. I was like oh yay I, you're like thank you mommy thank you yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know sometimes that you is, need you sometimes you need the acknowledgement man like, yep that mm -hmm. is a way that I try to end like a lot of my sessions with clients like hey you did really mm -hmm. good work tonight you should be proud of yourself mm -hmm. um, and I try to say that I'm proud of you but more like you should be proud of yourself like you put in some mm -hmm. hard work or yeah this was a hard this was a hard session. You worked really hard. You just try to like give them that kind of like uplifting thing to kind of go out on. Cause I don't think people understand how draining some of the, of the things that uh -huh. they can be like, it can be real. And I try to be more and more conscious of like, if we are dealing with these really traumatic events from their past or even their present of like taking the last few minutes to almost cut them off and do some sort of breathing or mindful activity. Mm -hmm. So they're not in that space when the 45 minute mark hits. And I'm like, all right, you got to go. Yeah. 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 And that's why we do this uplifting moment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, the thinking behind it. Yeah. As um, above, so below. <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. We need to do that at some point too. Um, well, okay, so let's talk about what we're doing next because it's going to be a new month and a new theme, and I am not sure we're quite ready to announce this, but we've got a lot planned for October, and I'm really excited um, to share some of that stuff with you, so be, ch be listening. Keep your ear to the socials um, because we've got some really exciting things, but our next theme, which I'm also really excited about, Next month, we're going to be talking about PTSD, which I've talked a lot about already, but I think we're really going to dive in and explore it. Um, and we are pairing it with one of my absolute favorite movies. We're going to talk about The Descent. Yes, and I'm so excited for this. Excellent. I mean, it's, I, it, it feels weird to say excited about PTSD in a, a very upsetting yeah. movie, but I am. I'm really I'm happy that we're doing this and I'm I'm happy to talk about it. So it's going to be great. <laughs> So watch The Descent, and we will drop that episode. That's going to be the first Thursday in October. Um, and I will also say that there are five Thursdays in October, and we've got a lot of exciting things coming up. And it's so. Halloween season. It's just, it's it that, is. you know, yep. even if Halloween is screwed up this year in here, it's going to be yeah. Halloween season. Yeah. We're having a um, little bit of a... Um, back and forth at our household and when the proper day to turn put up decorations are for Halloween season. I mm. say September 1st. September 1st. September 1st, of course. Yeah. Thank it's you. November 1st, right? <laughs> for next year. <laughs> yeah. We still have our Christmas tree up from 
Christmas, but um, yeah, it, I mean, it's Halloween in my heart mm-hmm. year round, but it's like, there's this feeling when it's actually Halloween mm-hmm. and you like, you can finally let it all go. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got a lot of fun things planned for October. If you want to know more about that, um, follow us on socials. You can find us at PsychoAPod on um, Twitter and Instagram. Um, We also, and I think Facebook, although I still don't know exactly how Facebook works, but there are two groups that you can join, um, Facebook groups, where you can answer the question. Oh, we didn't do homework. Shit. Well, Tell us about uh, the people in your neighborhood growing yes, up we want okay. to know go to our facebook group sign up or answer this on twitter we want to know who were the people in your neighborhood that yes. freaked you out yeah. did you see yeah. anything weird was there a haunted house uh did mm-hmm. your neighbor did your neighbor was he building something in there you know we want to know. yeah because yeah. we have the right to know you know we, really we have do. a right to know <laughs> yeah i have a creepy neighbor story that i will share in the facebook group yeah so um <laughs> my clunky transition aside there are two different facebook groups that you can join um one is called the psychoanalysis podcast support group and then there's another one that is fan created um the psychoanalysis Analysis family. It's either yes. the psychoanalysis family or the psychoanalysis podcast family. Either way, you'll find it. After dark. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> That's where we talk about smashing the horny button. Yes. Anyway, I'll stop. Exactly. I'm sorry. Yes. I'll sweater stop. Sweater corner. Yeah, sweater <laughs> corner. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry for using that phrase. Sm- oh, no. I love that so phrase. Smash it. it. Smash that button. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I will say both of those groups are private and they're moderated. So um, that's kind of we, we're hoping that can be kind of a safe place to talk about your responses because we want we want this to be a conversation with you. So make sure you check those out. And if you hate Facebook, I'm going to give my little Facebook hack again create an alt account or a, create just a new account and don't friend anyone mm-hmm. and yeah. then all you see is what's in the group that's yeah. what i do also if you have friend requested me i just want to say that is my policy that i do not friend anyone it is absolutely not personal i didn't friend my brother so yeah. <laughs> very good yeah. i support um, it but I will say these groups, like, they're growing, and we're having some really interesting conversations in there. Um, and I'm working on questions of the day to go in. So check those out. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find um, all kinds of other fantastic shows on that network, like The Losers Club, Halloweenies, Horror Virgin, This Must Be the Gig, Kyle Meredith with The Assembly, Ghost Echoes, The Fifth Dimension. Um, you can also check out their website because there's lots of amazing writing, like, tons of pieces about music and movies and pop culture um just you can't go wrong so check it out um mike where can people find you so my other show is the pod and the pendulum which i co-host with jerry smith from dread central and a number of other outlets um we cover similar to halloweenies we cover different horror movie franchises uh we're a weekly show and right now as We're recording this, our latest episode, um, the first of two episodes on A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Master, is up. We're going to be recording our second part on that because we had so many people want to join us uh, for that that we're going to just divide it into two episodes. So right now we're in the middle of covering A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, The response to the part of the pendulum has been really humbling like it's just jerry and i we don't really have anything else behind us in terms of marketing or promotion like we don't have a website i have no idea how to do seo marketing or (laughs) any of that stuff but like 
as August, as we're recording this, it's the last day of August, and this has been our biggest month of downloads by a pretty wide amount. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and just to see that growth is really, really incredible and really humbling. And every week we feature different guests. So I know, like, Jen, you've been on before. Uh, We just had Mm -hmm. Terry from Scarred. Uh, Scarred for Life on. We had Sam Weinman, um, who's the director of the upcoming queer documentary, queer horror documentary for Shudder on our Freddy's Revenge episode. And we have a lot of guests lined up in the coming weeks. So you can find us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian uh, as well over on Twitter. I, like Jen, I, I don't really friend anyone anymore on Facebook unless I know them really well. Um, and I'm trying to kind of actively pare down the people in my, in that dimension just because like, I just don't use it. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, like the little under panties we all wear because we're naughty boys and girls. <laughs> and uh, that's okay. We yeah. learned in this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, like J. Edgar Hoover wearing women's panties. You can find me at Underalls on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I said that. And on Instagram at Instaglum. Um, like Instagram, but sad. I'm a ro- rotating loser, occasional loser on Losers Club. And I've been on Halloweenies as well back on the Nightmare on Elm Street season primarily because that's my favorite franchise. That's me. Um, and you can find me at uh, Jen Ferratu on all of the socials. Um, I, I'm also a rotating loser. I was just on the Insomnia episode, and I just started reading Rose Matter for that upcoming episode. So it's uh, it's going to be a mood month for me, I think. Yeah, so I was going to say, that's an intense one to get knowledge. It is. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I, and I've read it before, so I know what to expect. And I actually am liking it. Like, it has not been as hard to read as I thought it was mm. going to, but um, good, I'm good. excited to talk <laughs> about it. Um, but yeah, and so, yeah, that's where you can find all of us. Check us out because we're pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and so, on that note, I think we're going to leave the paranoid suburbs behind, and we will see you next time in a deep, dark cave. Gotta um, go splunking, baby. Exactly. Yeah. With a lot of awesome women. And I'm so excited. Yeah. So watch The Descent. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. I am Jen. I'm Lara. Am I Mike? Are you? you, Are you Mike? I don't know anymore. Uh Who are you? (laughs) I'm paranoid. Um, Well, guys, we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. (laughs) And we're all out of bubble gum. gum. (laughs) Best one yet. I know. Consequence Podcast Network.